This podcast contains adult language and mature themes, which may not be suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own fucking risk. Welcome to Essential NPCs, the podcast where we sample some of the best and possibly some of the worst tabletop RPGs. I'm Addie. And I'm Tommy. And you're listening to Series 9, Episode 21, Showdown at Constance Grove, Part 2. We don't have any words with the GM or announcements for this special part two of the finale uh, for series nine. We got some of the cast together and we're going to answer your questions that you guys sent in for post-game chatter. So stick around after the action is over. Uh, We had some great questions and we're really excited to give you guys the answers you guys have been waiting for. But before we get to post-game chatter, we have to see how things shake out in Constance Grove. So... Without further ado, let's move on in and listen to Series 9, Episode 21, Showdown at Constance Grove, Part 2. Enjoy! The last time we left our drifters, they had fortified the town of Constance Grove against the impending assault of Peter O'Malley and his most elite crew. Once Peter O'Malley showed up, he revealed... The leverage he had over Eliza Valancourt, producing a mobile gallows on which he placed the captured, beaten, and tortured Roy Hampton, who was caught shadowing Peter O'Malley. Looking down there, you see Roy, the noose around his neck. O'Malley goes back into his car to wait for Eliza to come down to talk to him. Meanwhile, you see about a dozen family members uh, standing around by the motorcycles and the cars, armed, watching the house, watching their flanks, waiting for something to happen. Eliza turns to the four of you, you in particular, Juliet, her eyes wide. You see that she was not ready for that. She kind of steps back. She's shaken and looks at you as if to ask, what do we do? I walk over to her. I feel at ease in this situation, which is always freaky. And, uh... I take out my mama's gun, hold out your hands, look me in the eye, repeat after me. I bring justice to those that are evil. A little bit of a a stutter in her breath for a moment as she breathes in to speak. I bring justice to those that are evil. My fury is righteous. My fury is righteous. I am a shepherd to the innocent. I am a shepherd to the innocent. All shall fear my zealous retribution. She looks down at the gun that you've placed in her hand, and her fingers kind of curl around the grip. All shall fear my zealous retribution. When you pull the trigger, you mean it. Shoot to kill. Take no life that you don't need to. Take every life you must. She nods, looks out the window towards the car where O'Malley is. And you notice her eyes don't flick over to where Roy is on the gallows. She's just staring directly at where O'Malley was last seen. And she goes, all right, Mr. Sawyer. Yes, ma'am. I have a feeling that our guests here won't take kindly to what I'm about to do. Would you be so kind as to secure Mr. Hampton's safety uh, by way of Ache extraction? As As I recall, Sugar's quite fast on her feet. Why, yes. 
I would. Hey, Pops. Yes, Mr. Sawyer. Would you happen to be feeling up to a rescue? Well, I think that would be a mighty fine thing, Mr. Sawyer. Well, shall we? Sugar, may I? Yes. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll mount sugar at the neck. I'll get up behind him. So the two of you kind of go t- behind the mayor's house, starting to climb up onto the Ache. And Eliza turns to Juliet and, and Cyrus. She says, I imagine those that feel a particular loyalty to Mr. O'Malley will continue the fight, even if he is shot. Can I count on the two of you to cover me? Oh, you're going to be anything but alone down there. I promise. Then there's no time to waste. Yeah, in a kind of hushed tone, I'm going to be like, all right, all right, anybody who feels comfortable taking the fight to O'Malley, we're sneaking down to the garage. Follow me. A couple people stand up, one of which is uh, Alejandra Padilla. She steps up, nods to you, and they begin following your lead as you move to sneak uh, into the tree line and down the hill towards where the garage is. I will find a neckerchief and tie it around my face like I am a bandit and find a very fine hat somewhere and put it on. There's plenty of fine hats here. So yeah, you can put on a, a mask and a hat. And I will set up as her second. Okay. So uh, she steps to the door. You pull up the bandana over your face and tilt the hat down to kind of cover the, the rest of your face. And she holsters your mother's gun and pushes open the front doors to the manor house. Uh, Cyrus, go ahead and roll a sneaking test. Take a minus two just because you got kind of a group with you and you're I'm kind of lumping them all up with your roll as you kind of direct them into the woods and sneak your way down towards the garage. Clayton and Pops, you guys are just kind of sitting behind the the manor home waiting for the signal, or are you going to try and sneak to a better position on uh, on top of Sugar? Oh, I think we can get to a better position just fine. Okay, go ahead and roll a wrangle test. Take a minus three to it. Uh, just because there's two of you on top of a big, bright red Ache. So it'll be pretty hard against the green landscape of Constance Grove to move around unnoticed. Uh, but if you manage to get into the tree lines, you might be able to sneak around, like not to like a perfect flank, but at least get a little bit closer with a better straight shot down the hill towards where Roy is. Okay, I'll spend two grip beforehand to bamboozle them. And give them a minus two? Yep. Clayton gets some mud and camouflages sugar. Nice. Yeah. Three successes to wrangle. And what's your highest? Six. So actually, because you bamboozled them, uh, they can't count their hits unless they want to spend grit uh, to go it strong. And I'm not going to do that uh, because I have better uses for my grit coming up. So uh, they actually get no hits. So, um, really you rub some, uh, mud on like one of the sides of, of sugar and you and pops kind of hug her. And there's like a moment where you kind of dash into the tree line and then circle around and you're hopefully, uh, uh, unnoticed as you kind of get a more straight shot towards Roy. It's not a perfect flank cause you don't have enough cover really to pull it off, but it's a much less obstructed path for sure. And Cyrus, what did you get for your highest? I'm going to spend three grit to go it strong so I can count my 10 and it crits. Okay, I got two hits, 10 high. Uh, You are up against an eight. So how many net hits? Two. Okay. Uh, So yeah, you and and Alejandra and this this other townie begin making your way down the tree line 
towards the garage. You're going to be able to get there about the same time that Eliza and Juliet make it down the walkway to where uh, O'Malley and the rest of the family are. And where's Giles? Uh, Giles is uh, sitting back. He opted to stay back and cover the people at the house. Good. Great. Perfect. And Juliet, you're walking down with Eliza down towards uh, the main strip where uh, O'Malley's car is. You see Roy standing like it looks like he's weak on his feet. He's barely managing to keep himself from like slumping over and letting the noose tighten a little bit. And he's kind of wobbling there and he sees you two coming. And uh, he looks like he wants to say something, but he's just like too weak to even like shout out to you. And uh, as you get down there, um, the door to O'Malley's car opens up. And he steps out, smiling, and uh, he goes, I figured you could see reason. You just needed a little bit of a nudge. Who's your friend? And Eliza says, an insurance policy. O'Malley kind of looks around at his guys, looks Eliza up and down. He goes, now, if I didn't know better, I'd think you were coming down here to start trouble. And Eliza like stops walking towards him, squares off her, like sets her, her feet about shoulder width apart and uh, drops her hand down towards Juliet's mother's gun. She goes, yes, sir. I think I do mean to cause some trouble. You see, Mr. O'Malley, today is the day where justice finally finds you. And he raises an eyebrow and looks around, kind of grinning. He uh, pulls the cigar out of his mouth and uh, pulls a little uh, metal case out of his pocket, pops the cap off it, slides the cigar in for later, hooks it shut, and as he's tucking it back in his jacket, he goes, Oh, little lady, how many people do you think have squared off against me, just like you are now, so sure of themselves? And she goes, They ain't me. And they stare at each other for a moment, and uh, Clayton and Pops, while that conversation is happening, simultaneous to that, you're kind of nestled in some bushes, uh, hugging on to Sugar, and uh, Clayton, Sugar's acting like weird. She's like kind of pulling at the reins a little bit, trying to turn her head, and you're trying to keep her like looking in the direction you need to go. And uh, you're watching as like Juliet and Eliza like get there, and the car door opens up, and Peter O'Malley steps out. And then all of a sudden, there's someone right next to you. And then, and you like, and you're startled and you, you turn and like you instinctively reach for your gun before you realize you're looking at the face of Badlands Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, standing there tall, looking at, looking at you, Clayton, he puts up his hands when you reach for his gun. He's like, Oh, hey, 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 Clayton, Clayton, it's me. Uh, am I too late? Did I miss the action? Came as fast as I could. Oh, hell Pete. Good to see you. No, we're getting ready to kick it off. All right. And he, uh, he kind of turns and he goes, hey, um, I don't really know who's with who here, but there's some folk in the woods behind the house. They with you? I don't think so. Oh, hell. That's not good. I didn't know what was going on, so I just kind of snuck by him. But it looks like they're moving in on the house, so we're not, we're not taking the house then. No, we're holding the house. And he nods and goes, all right. You may want to let someone know there's going to be something up at the house then. <laughs> I let I let them know at the house that there's something going on. Uh, you hear Giles' voice in your head. Oh, hell. All right. We'll turn our eyes towards the rear. 
And I bring Pete into our mind link. At that point, Eliza says, they ain't me. And O'Malley goes, well, if you insist. I give sugar the tonic. And he, uh, uh, he brushes back his uh, suit jacket to reveal a, a shoulder holster with a large gun with golden designs on it, a pearl handle grip. And uh, he reaches his, uh, his hand about halfway across his chest towards it. And he looks to Eliza and goes, say when. And there's uh, a moment. And Eliza drops her hand down towards Juliet's mother's gun pulls it out of the holster and shoots Peter O'Malley in the chest. Huh. And you see Peter O'Malley didn't even reach for his gun. The bullet hits him in the chest. He takes a little step back and lets out like an involuntary. Ugh! And then Eliza's eyes go a little wide as a smile begins to cross Peter O'Malley's face as he uses the shrug it off talent to have the damage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he reaches his hand halfway across his chest, reaches behind his, uh, his puff tie and pulls out a little tonic and he pops the cork off of it, takes a swig and the wound begins healing up on his chest. And the hand that had tucked his jacket behind him comes down with brass knuckles on it. And he goes, yep, they just like you. And he rushes forward towards Eliza, raising his fist to strike her. And all of the uh, uh, family pull out, their, uh, uh, pull out their guns to shoot at Juliet. And I need everyone to roll initiative. All right, I'd like to make my own luck. And then I will uh, play to the gallery. And I think I'll also twist the knife. <laughs> all right, what did everyone get on initiative? With all that grit, that is... Eight for Paps. Six for Cyrus. Twelve for Juliet. Seven for Clayton. All right, Juliet, you are up first. I would like to shoot at Peter O'Malley's hand. Uh, to try and knock the brass knuckles off of it? Yes. <laughs> All right, that will be a called shot, so it's a minus two. He has a high of 11. All right, I can only count three net hits, so that's what I will do. It's 21 damage with four piercing. Okay, so he's rushing forward and instantly you have your guns in your hand and you take a shot. You knock the brass knuckles right off his hand, uh, the bullet tearing uh, not just up his hand, but like up his arm a little bit, shooting out of like his forearm and his arm like flies down and, and the brass knuckles fall to the ground and he grabs his arm and uh, he like stops in his advance for a second to like turn towards you. And then just in case I am the next people to go are the bad guys, I will shoot the rope holding up Roy there. Okay. I don't really see any sense in you rolling for that. It's not like Roy is dodging. So even with a minus two, it's unopposed. It will just take one hit and you are very good. So I'm just going to, yeah, your, your one shot uh, shoots uh, Peter O'Malley in the arm and his brass knuckles fall to the ground. He turns to you, not ready for you to have moved that quickly. And then uh, almost simultaneously, you fire another shot, snapping the rope that is attached to uh, Roy's neck. And Peter O'Malley is the next to go. You shoot him in the arm and he like steps back for a second. And then like, just like he just shoots you a glance as he draws his pistol out and aims it at Eliza and fires at Eliza. Uh, and uh, he will hit. 
Uh, I would like to shoot that bullet out of the sky. Oh my god! Using your new talent, Lead for Lead, uh, you can lose two initiative and roll a ranged test at a minus two to attempt to deflect that bullet with your own bullet. (laughs) I have a 14. You were attempting to beat a 10. So he like stumbles a little bit and just like still taking a few steps towards Eliza, he's going to pull out his pistol and try to finish the job and shoot her. And she's stepping back shocked. She hit him like almost in the heart. She thought she did it. And she's taking a step back. And in that split second, there's a spark in the air between Peter O'Malley and Eliza as his gun goes off and your gun goes off nearly simultaneously, shooting his bullet out of the sky. There's a like spark of, of the two bullets colliding and Eliza like blinks and turns and O'Malley, his eyes go wide as he turns towards you, uh, Juliet, just like completely dumbfounded with what just happened. And before he has a chance to do anything else, uh, Pops, it is your turn. Did anybody else just see that? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. She's never done that before. (laughs) (laughs) So, Pops, uh, there's a gunfight a little ways ahead of you. There's about 10 to 12 guys around where Juliet is. The rope has just been severed from Roy. You uh, see Juliet uh, beginning to exchange bullets with the the family. Uh, Pops is going to hold his turn uh, so that we can get into the midst of battle a little bit. Okay. With that, Pete... Bursts out of the tree line, <laughs> pulling his lasso above his head. Uh, Juliet, you see Badlands Pete running out of the tree line, uh, and he raises a lasso above his head. And one of the guys who's aiming his gun at you, Juliet, uh, just gets pulled off of his position uh, uh, nearby the gallows and like dragged up towards where Badlands Pete is. And Pete kind of just jumps up, spinning in the air, and slams his fist into this guy's uh, head. Uh, knocking him out or killing him, hard to tell for sure. And then he loosens the lasso as he rushes forward towards another member of the family and just like clotheslines them, knocking them down. And then he stamp he stamps down on their chest, and you hear like a cracking sound. Who is that wild man? Who the hell is that? <laughs> that is Badlands Pete. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I think the heat of battle might be going to your head, Mister Sawyer. At that, the family members who are aiming at you, Juliet, half of them are going to turn their attention towards the wild visage of Badlands Pete bursting out and attacking them. So three of them are going to shoot at you, Juliet. All right. One of them is going to shoot at Eliza, and the other two are going to shoot at Badlands Pete. Uh, so I need you to roll three defense tests, uh, Juliet, as they, uh, as they are shooting at you. You are up against a 10. I succeed with an 11. All right. Shot number two. Uh, you're only up against an eight that time. Succeed with a 13. And the final shot, you're up against an 11. Uh, I'm hit uh, with one net hit for I rolled an 11 high. All right. So you step back, the bullets spraying at your feet, and you dash to the side uh, as the bullets begin to follow you. But one of them does manage to clip you, and you will take six damage with four armor piercing. And then Pete will roll from the family member who he just dispatched and dive forward as the gunfire flies around him. And uh, Eliza will move back and kind of run the opposite direction of you, Juliet, 
uh, you both kind of split from each other and the bullets kind of rake the area in between you where you were both standing before. Uh, Clayton, you are up. I spur on Sugar and uh, we start riding towards Roy. Uh, am I going to be able to make it to him this round? Oh, yeah. You got into a good position that you can get to him in one go without having to roll a wrangle test. Uh, so you burst out of the trees just behind Badlands Peak. Kind of, uh, Sugar actually kind of leaps over him as he's dodging bullets. And you ride directly at the gunfire towards Roy, uh, who has been holding his turn, and he jumps. <laughs> Am I able to shoot as, uh, as we advance? Absolutely, yeah. And is there anybody in Sugar's way? There's two family members, uh, two that haven't acted yet. Uh, Sugar's going to run them over on the way to the gallows, and I'm going to shoot around him. Okay. Go ahead and roll Sugar's attacks. Uh, she is up against a 10. First one misses. Uh, this time she's up against an 8. That is four net hits for 20 damage. And okay. uh, three armor piercing. Yeah, so the one guy, uh, as you burst out, he's he was looking in Pete's direction, and he sees this... Ache rushing forward uh, and he manages just barely to jump out of the way. The other guy is not so lucky. He gets gored by Sugar's horn just like right through his uh, through his chest and she kind of dips her head down so that he slides out underneath her and he, she stamps over him uh, as she continues her charge, not losing any momentum. And then I'm going to concentrate my fire on the biggest group of individuals I can find. Okay, yeah, you can target three of them with your full auto ability. Okay, you're up against a, a three, a nine, and an 11, respectively, for these three family members uh, you're shooting at. Uh, three net hits on everybody. Uh, 21 damage to each of them. All right, so you target the three guys who shot at Juliet, and you spray your, your gunfire, um, and you actually... Uh, uh, do manage to hit all three of them pretty heartily. They get like knocked back, uh, bullets peppering them in their uh, in their shoulders, legs, and a little bit center mass. They're all still alive. Uh, you see that their suits that they're wearing are definitely armored as the facade on the outside kind of strips away and you see like the kind of silvery mesh lining of it getting sh uh, shredded by your bullets. They're very hurt, but still alive. And uh, Pops, you said you were holding your turn. Now that you're in the middle of it, do you want to take your turn? Yeah, there are still folks shooting at uh, Juliet, yes? Uh, yeah, you basically, uh, now that you've rushed in, uh, the Ache bowls over somebody. Roy actually hops onto the Ache. Now there's three of you on there, so Sugar's going to be slowed down quite a bit. And he's kind of just holding on to the back, like hugging on to Clayton for dear life on Sugar's backside. And Clayton shoots through three guys, hurting them a lot, but not taking them out completely. And then there's still nine family members uh, surrounding you, not including Peter O'Malley. Okay. I'm going to hop off with Sugar. I'll say to Clayton, you keep him safe. Uh, I would like to suss out the most heavily armored individual if I can. Well, it would have been Peter O'Malley, but he's been hit a little bit. Uh, there's, yeah, there's five guys um, who look a little more heavily armored than the others, and they're toting assault rifles, not too dissimilar than from Cyrus's. And I'll shoot one of the heavily armored fellows with my laser. Are you targeting one of the already injured, or are you targeting a fresh one? A fresh one. Go ahead and take the shot. That is a high of seven. Uh, you are up against a three. I don't believe it. Oh, well, then that's three net hits. How much damage is that? 
Uh, all told, that is 18 damage with eight piercing. So you fire that laser shot into the shoulder of that gunman. He steps back, grabbing his shoulder as the red beam zooms through him, piercing through the other side. The hand holding his gun droops a little bit, and he uh, tries to dive for cover. He's still he's still alive. So he dives for cover, and I will um, unholster my pistol with the hand with the cybernetic cast on it, holding my shield in the other, and I'll uh, I'll shoot another fresh one with some sh- with some shock dart ammo. All right, go ahead and roll up. It is a high 13. Well, this one did a little bit better. He had a high of 10. There's only one net hit for uh, five damage, two piercing. Uh, so as you drop down, you fire a laser through one guy. He starts darting for cover. You draw, draw your pistol and you shoot another one, uh, hitting him in the leg with one of your shock darts. Uh, it zaps him and, and he, uh, uh, his leg starts spasming a little bit. He's going to be at some negatives now. And Cyrus, you're up. All right. So I will pop open the door to that garage Say, Veronique's Vanguard rolling out, and uh, I am going to drive Veronique down into the fray. My goal, if possible, I would like to hit Peter O'Malley with my fucking van. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, an Ache with a shield-bearing laser-toting preacher comes out one side followed by a crazy mountain man with a lasso and they're all their attention is focused that way and then down the street the garage doors burst open as doc cyrus's traveling apothecary skids out of the garage and get goes zooming down uh towards the fray and uh yeah if you want to try and hit peter o'malley with a car you can roll a drive test <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up. It's about to get bumpy. Okay, I've got a high 11. Cyrus, you can take a grit as Peter O'Malley goes it strong to be able to count his 13. Okay. And you flare through through the fight, bullets riddling around, and you're about to hit Peter O'Malley, and he's like tears his eyes off of his shock at Juliet and dives forward into the dirt, uh, mussing up his somewhat bloodied uh, suit even more as he just barely manages to uh, to jump out of the way. You actually, uh, uh, you see as his foot, the tip of his uh, Snollygoster shoe is clipped by, uh, by your van just a little bit and you scuff up his shoe. <laughs> and I'll, I'll like make a, a right turn to kind of drift Veronique so that the the kind of stage door on the side is pointed toward O'Malley, which I will pop open <laughs> so uh, my passengers have a clear shot. <laughs> uh, you do so. And uh, Alejandra dual-wielding uh, pistols that she got off the guards in the mine and this this townie uh, with a rifle in his hand uh, are strapped in and in position and the door flies open and they unload. The, the town the townie takes a shot at O'Malley, but O'Malley is already scrambling to his feet and manages to duck right as he pulls the trigger and uh, his shot goes wide. Alejandra, uh, actually seeing the wounded soldiers kind of scattered around the battlefield, will use the burst fire on these two automatic pistols that she has to kind of just cover the battlefield with, uh, with gunfire. And she is going to attempt to finish off the three people that Clayton wounded and also hit O'Malley and two other people. Uh, and everyone can have a grit as I will have O'Malley go it strong again. 
uh, to be able to avoid her gunfire. Uh, however, the three that you had heavily wounded, Clayton, go down. They're they're scrambling around, clutching their wounds, and they just get gunned down uh, hopelessly. Uh, the one who you shot with a laser pops. He also goes down. And then the other one besides Peter O'Malley that she was aiming at does manage to duck into his cover and avoid being hit. And the one uh, family member who hadn't gone yet, the one who managed to jump out of the way of the Ache, uh, will stand up and rush Juliet. And uh, skidding to the ground uh, through all the bullet fire, uh, he drops to the ground, skids, and he is going to attempt to grab your ankle, Juliet. Uh, so you can roll a defense test. Uh, you are up against a 12. I have a 10 high. Okay, so he does manage to grab onto your ankle, and at the moment that he does, I will spend grit so everyone can get grit as he doubles down uh, and his eyes glow a bright yellowish-white light as he uses an insight power against you. And so I need you to roll discipline. And Juliet, you are up against a 10. I have no hits. Okay, uh, so uh, he will successfully cast this insight power against you. I'm actually going to use my warding abilities to keep her safe. Okay, so uh, you feel this kind of emanating pulse of energy, Clayton, and even without having to look, you, you can sense an insight power is being used in your presence, and uh, you can extend your consciousness to try and protect Juliet in that split instance. Uh, so go ahead and roll warding. You're trying to beat a 10. Uh, nine. So, Juliet, the effects are lessened uh, because Clayton managed to block a little bit of it. Um, so with Clayton's warding, the family member only gets one net hit over you as he uses the puppeteer power, <laughs> pushing his mind into yours, controlling your actions and thoughts. You're aware of the intrusion as your the control over your body is severed uh, and you feel this alien presence inside your uh, inside your your mind and your nervous system moving your body to to whatever and it wants. While he's maintaining physical contact with you, you will have to bend to his will. However, because Clayton managed to uh, ward you pretty well, uh, he only got one net success, which means he only gets to make you do one action. He will make you shoot Eliza. Okay. His pupils glowing that kind of white goldish light and your pupils also glowing that white goldish light. You feel as your arms are forced up uh, and actually, uh, this happens on your turn, which it is right now. So you have to use your turn shooting Eliza. I will do that. Eliza's got a 10 to dodge. I hit her with one net hit. So that's uh, seven, seven damage with four piercing. Using Aegis Pops is going to act out of turn to use Deflect. Uh, that will only cost me one initiative. And I'm going to stop that from happening, hopefully. All right, uh, Pops, you see what's going on. You don't quite know a lot about Luminescence, but you know enough to kind of suss out what's going on as Juliet's gun raises to shoot at Eliza. Eliza sees it coming, and she tries to, like, dive out of the way, but she's a, a little surprised, not expecting to be shot at by Juliet. And you pop your shield up and run forward. Go ahead and roll deflect. You are attempting to beat, uh, what was your highest? Uh, 15. Uh, you are attempting to beat a 15. All right, well, that's a high of 13. 
Okay, uh, so you do manage to get in the way, but you're not able to bring your shield to bear, and you will get hit. Um, so he has a 13 against you, Juliet. That is one net hit. It is seven damage with four piercing. Yeah, because of a shield master, the piercing will go to my shield. Okay, uh, so you do actually manage to get your shield in the way uh, enough that uh, you only take armor and shield damage as you kind of, uh, the bullet ricochets grazing your shield and like your shoulder armor as you put yourself in the way. Uh, Juliet, you are commanded to shoot at Eliza again with your other gun. Okay. So that again is a 15. The best Eliza got was a five. Uh, yeah, so Pops will uh, put himself in harm's way again. Uh, losing another initiative, you can roll deflect. Um, I will, and that's a high of 12. Okay. Uh, so that is two net hits, uh, which is 14 damage and four piercing. Uh, so Pops, you managed to kind of get your shield and your armor in the way at first, and then uh, Juliet raises her other gun, takes a shot, and you continue to stand in front of Eliza, kind of putting your hand back, pushing her behind you. Uh, as she stumbles, uh, a little shocked, trying to process what's going on, and the second shot goes right into your leg. Uh, and Juliet, as you take that second shot, you're able to force your will back into control of your body. Uh, your eyes return to normal, and you sever the connection between you and the illuminated family member who is holding your ankle, as he only was able to get one action out of you. Great. Um, I would like to spend four grit and double down. Okay, uh, so at the end of your slash his turn, you get another turn that's all yours. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I would like to shoot him. Very much. <laughs> uh, you're up against a 10, 10 high. That is three net hits with four piercing, so that is 21 damage with four piercing. Yeah, uh, he feels the connection sever, and he looks a little shocked. He thought he got you better than that, but there was he didn't really sense the warding that had happened. And uh, as his eyes return to normal, he looks up at you, and you just drop one of your guns down right into his forehead and point blank pull the trigger, and he goes slamming down into the ground. Okay. Uh, at this point, you guys hear gunfire happening uh, up around the house, and Giles uh, thinks to you guys, Oh, there they are. <laughs> Great. I would like to fire my other pistol. I would like to scuff up those nice shoes that Peter O'Malley has um, by shooting a hole through one of them. This is a called shot to his foot. Uh, to try and slow him down? Yeah, uh, I think to expedite Eliza's retreat. That is a 12 high. Uh, highest he has is an 8. That is a uh, Two net hits, uh, which is 14 damage with four of that being piercing. Okay, you level your gun at O'Malley, and uh, one of the remaining family members is actually going to dive down onto the ground uh, to protect O'Malley, and uh, he is going to deflect. Uh, he does not have a shield, so he takes the full damage. Uh, so however many net hits that is. 21 damage, four of which is piercing. Okay, um, so he actually manages to live, throwing himself in the in the way. He kind of gives his back to you, and uh, your bullet wedges into his shoulder blade, kind of digging into his armor, and blood shoots out. But he's actually still alive, that family member, as Peter O'Malley kind of scrambles to his feet. 
and O'Malley looks around, sees that he is definitely losing this battle. Almost, it seems like instinctively, he rushes towards Eliza, and with Pops kind of standing in the way there, you see like just the briefest moment of hesitation before he changes his attention towards Pops, and then he's going to rush forward, and he's going to try and grapple you, Pops. And you are up against a 13. Uh, in that case, I am absolutely going to uh, play the gallery. Uh, it is also a high of 13. Okay, well, Ty goes to the attacker. So he gets you in a rating one grapple, uh, kind of rushes towards Eliza. You step in the way, and he, he like, grits his teeth and, and goes, All right, then, father, if you insist... And he rushes up, grabs uh, uh, grabs at you. You try to raise your shield but uh, uh, to knock his hand away, but he's just too strong. He manages to reach in. Uh, you kind of punch his uh, arm, and he grabs onto your collar, pulling you uh, towards him, grab, putting his arm around you, and he slams a gun to your temple. And he goes, enough is enough. Anyone else does a damn thing, I'm taking the father down. It's all right, everyone. Just remain calm. And Pops, it is your turn. We've established that we can see through our mental links, is that correct? Yes. If I can see where his position is um, through, say, Juliet's eyes, can I point my laser at him? Uh, yeah, because it's just a command. The, the default command is to aim where you look, but the technology is advanced enough that you can actually command for the laser to aim elsewhere. Um, so he's got his gun against my temple. I tell everyone to remain calm. And my uh, shoulder-mounted laser will snap back, points at his face, and I say, This is for my son, you dirty bastard. And I fire. Go ahead and roll that range test. There's no penalty because you have the telepathic link, so you can actually see where the gun is aiming. Uh, you are up against an 11. Uh, I've got a high of 14. That is uh, two net hits, 12 damage. Um, and I am, uh, I'm going to go ahead and spend grit to twist the knife and I'll get an extra hit for, uh, 18 total. All right. That will finish off Peter O'Malley. He's shocked as the laser whips around, aims at him. And as he starts to loosen his grip so that he can duck out of the way, you fire the laser. It goes up through his cheekbone and out the top of his head, uh, a clean cauterized narrow wound. And he stumbles back. Uh, a little burning hole in his uh, in his, in the, his cheekbone, and he drops his pistol, letting go of you, pops, and he reaches out towards you as if to try and grab you again, but then stumbles and drops onto the hill and kind of rolls a little bit, and then skids to a stop. Holy shit, pops! And pops gets his first kill of the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, pop out of the door of Veronique. Put her, putting her in park, and I like run over, see if everybody's okay. As you're as you're rushing over, the other family members who are still alive um, sit there for a moment, and they're holding their guns. They see O'Malley go down, and there's like a moment of pause as like Cyrus is making his way over to the rest of you, and they start scattering, trying to jump onto the motorcycles and into the cars to make an escape. Uh, you do still hear some gunfire coming from the house. But then you hear Giles Farthing's voice shout out, wait, 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 stop shooting for just, just one damn minute. Peter O'Malley is dead. He's dead, you dummies. And there's like a break in the fire and he's like, I don't know how much longer I can keep this up, but at least I got him to stop for now. I'll, I'll pick up that bullhorn 
that he was uh, yelling through earlier. And uh, I'll click it on and say, uh, testing, testing. This is uh, Doc Cyrus Finch. You may know me better as Salvatore Mancini. I'm just going to go ahead and ask you all to stand down. Looks like O'Malley has uh, retired from his position. So why don't you all head back with your tails between your legs and take a real long while to figure out who, if anyone, wants to continue this enterprise. There's like a brief pause. No more gunfire. And then Giles goes, oh, yeah, they're leaving. Want me to run a couple of them down just to send a message or are you done? What do you think? I already got paid either way. I don't care. <laughs> uh, I'm actually asking Juliet, Clayton. Ah. I think the message has been received. I look down at Peter O'Malley's very dead body. I don't think they'll be back here right quick. I start taking Roy over to Veronique. Yeah, I'll, I'll look in after anybody who got injured in the skirmish there. I'm still trying to... He's really dead. I check O'Malley's pulse. <laughs> I use a med kit to make sure he's not using a feigned death tonic because I've heard that's like a really clever thing people can do. <laughs> you, you can roll a first aid test to try and uh, see through a feigned death tonic. Um, but uh, as you get Roy towards the uh, uh, van, um, Eliza rushes over to him and he kind of like, you know, is weakly hanging on to you, Clayton. And uh, she moves in and uh, he like kind of puts a hand on her shoulder and he kind of looks up and weakly smiles at her and goes, I told you I'd come back for you. And she just smiles and gives him a, a kiss on the least swollen part of his face <laughs> and uh, helps you, Clayton, uh, get Roy kind of like leaning up in Veronique waiting for medical attention. Uh, how many hits did you get on your feigned death detection, Cyrus? Four. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm taking that puff tie. <laughs> Yeah, you can do that. It's got a secret pocket in the back of it. I'll walk over to Pops. Pops is kneeling over the body. Uh, he hasn't moved since he got to it. But lift him up on his feet. Turn him away from o Peter O'Malley. Or what was Peter O'Malley? I don't know what happened. It's done. He just, he grabbed me and, uh, oh, I suppose I got a little bit angry with him. It's gonna be okay. We don't know that for certain. No, we don't. But you should know, what you did today was a great service to me, at least. And uh, you have my protection for the rest of your life. And I'll give him my call sign. I appreciate that, Dr. Finch, but, um, but I'll do my best not to need any protecting. And uh, uh, Pops is going to take his shoulder-mounted laser. He's going to uh, remove the uh, sensors from his face and uh, disconnect it from his shoulder pauldron. And he's going to turn back to the body of Peter O'Malley and uh, set it on his stomach and fold Peter O'Malley's hands over the, uh, over the laser. And he will um, walk away. And he doesn't walk towards the town. He finds a direction, and he keeps walking. Hey, Clayton? Yeah? You up for taking another job? Obviously. <laughs> uh, I got a friend who's got to make it back to his home. And uh, I feel like he's going to need a little bit of help getting there. What's the going rate? Hey, how about 2% of 
share in a luminescence mine. <laughs> Cyrus, get out of here. I'm trying to do something nice. Don't. Oh, well, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Juliet, I'm trying to do something nice too. Two percent stake in your mine? I heard you were looking for a home. Maybe I could help you get one. I think two percent of a mine would well, it'd be more than enough to be happy with, for sure. Uh, I stick out my hand. I shake it. It's a deal. Contingent on safe delivery. Of course, I'll keep him safe. Okay. I go around and I shake Juliet's hand. Uh, I shake. I shake Clayton's hand. Roy, stay out of trouble, you idiot. <laughs> he gives you like a weak like wave, and uh, and you can see a smile on his face. I whistle for sugar, and uh, I, I mount her, and I tell her to say goodbye to everybody. That <laughs> a girl. Pops, hold up. And I uh, start riding off towards Pops. So, Pops, you're kind of wheeling from, from what you just did. You're walking. Uh, you make it down to the bottom of the hill, and then you hear Clayton shout for you. And, uh, I mean, there's no way you're going to outrun, like, an Ache or anything. So, <laughs> uh, so he kind of pulls up next to you uh, as you continue walking and uh, a, a, a top sugar Clayton is uh, walking next to you. You know, Father, Alana faced many trials before she reached perfection. She slipped once or twice, and I'd hardly call what she did back there slip. More of a service, really. Now, there's no need to walk all the way to where you're going. I can take you there. I see you've really been studying your verities. But this, uh, this is a departure for me, and I don't even know if I have the years left to rebalance myself. If you're heading back to Liberty City, you're going to be a wanted man there, and not by the law either. You're absolutely right, Mr. Sawyer. I don't know where I'm going. Well, I just got a 2% share of a mine, thinking about opening up a little farm. You're more than welcome to stay there. Well, I uh, expect to at least work for my room and board if I can. I'd expect you to work for it, too. That is mighty kind of you. Sugar, what do you think? She stops walking and, like, looks to you. And you stop walking and look at her. And she gives you a big old wet, sloppy lick on the side of your face. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, uh... If old Sugar can put a smile on my face, then I reckon I'll need a little bit more of that in the coming years. Uh, well, Mr. Sawyer, I'll take you up on that offer. And who knows? Maybe it can be a sanctuary for people who've lost their way. No. Uh, you can find a new flock there. Just might. Just might. Pops will hop up on, on Sugar's back behind Clayton Sawyer, and he'll give him a pat on the shoulder. I'll say thank you. Thank you very much, son. Anytime, Father. You've helped me out spiritually. I think it's only fair. Mm. Let's go, sugar. All right. You uh, you guys can kind of see from a distance as Clayton gets pops up on the Ache and they go riding off to uh, somewhere. Just like that, huh? <laughs> Thanks, pops. Guess I owe that man more than I could ever repay. Pops will send back to as many people as he can reach. Thank you. So as Clayton and pops go riding off to find a place to start a farm. Eliza turns to you, Juliet, and she uh, pats the the gun at her side, uh, your mother's gun, and she goes, if you're willing, 
I'd like to keep uh, keep a hold on to this for a little while. Well, uh, it goes where I go. So if you'd like to keep it, you'll have to come with me. She slightly smiles at that. And she nods and goes, I think I'd like that. And if I'm lucky, maybe I can get as half as good as you are. I saw what you did during that fight. I want to help people, Juliet. I know that you think that your path is one that is forced on people. But just because you didn't get a choice in whether or not you were a gunslinger doesn't mean that I can't willingly choose the life. If you'll have me, of course, she says somewhat sheepishly at the end. (laughs) You tell Roy that he can come too, but I ain't training him. (laughs) I turn to Roy, who I think we're watching this at like a bit of a distance. I'm like, Ooh, legendary outlaw Roy Hampton, you're in for a whole mess of trouble. And I'm not just talking about that green stick fracture. And I punch him in the arm, which is <laughs> in a sling. <laughs> uh, Badlands Pete is going to walk up uh, to you, Juliet. Uh, Juliet, sorry I couldn't get here quicker. As always, your timing is impeccable, Pete. Thank you for coming. Oh, I'm going to run over there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't believe we've been introduced. Oh, uh, Pete. This is Cyrus. This is your man. When he wants to be. (laughs) And this massive, muscular man looks down to you, Cyrus. (laughs) And you are? I'm Pete. People call me Badlands Pete from time to time. Cyrus just kind of stands there dumbfounded, like gaping. And he like slowly puts his hand out to shake he like menaces over you for a second and then he, and then he grins. He goes, I'm just giving you a hard time. And he uh, <laughs> takes your hand, shakes it as well. And I lean up to him and I'm like, is it true that you put an augurino in a headlock and, <laughs> and choked it out? <laughs> <laughs> he puts his hands up and he's like, that, that one's just going to have to be one I'll leave you with. Hey, I just have to. And he lets out a massive sneeze uh, and like, Stops for a second and like blinks, uh, blinks away, like some tears that like popped in his eyes by the force of the sneeze. And he goes, yeah, I, I, I can't stick around and tell stories. Uh, I got real bad pollen allergies. I got to get back to the badlands. <laughs> Flowers, man. Pretty to look at in picture books and whatnot. But oh, <laughs> Ms. Valancourt and uh, Eliza. Perks up. He goes, mind if I borrow one of these here uh, vehicles they left behind? I got it. I got to go. I got to head west. And she smiles at that and nods. And he goes, been a pleasure seeing you again, Juliet. Cyrus, glad to meet you. You don't go running off again, all right? She was quite distraught, I might say. Yes, sir. Uh, never again. Because <laughs> if you ever do, I'll come find you. And he looks at you again menacingly. <laughs> And he's like, nah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. She'll kill you first. And then, <laughs> and then he climbs up on one of the motorcycles and, uh, and like kind of sits there for a second and he struggles to like start it. He's like, nah, it's not too different from a ball tail. And, uh, he revs up the engine and goes driving away. And, uh, yeah, uh, over the course of the next few weeks, uh, Constance Grove can start to reestablish itself, get itself back together. Uh, the bodies can get buried, um, uh, people start coming back from Amber Springs. Uh, Eliza works with some of the town leadership to arrange for an election of a new mayor. Nathaniel Valancourt is hung for his crimes uh, in the town square. 
And as his successor, before she gives over the mayor's house to the new mayor, uh, Eliza uh, taking ownership over the contracts that hold the indentured servants here, uh, she rips them up and and releases all of them. All of their metal torques are, re- are removed. She relieves them of their debt to Constance Grove and the mayor's office. She thinks it's the best she can do given how, how much hurt the Valancourts have caused so many people. And uh, after Constance Grove kind of gets settled down a little bit, Giles, uh, uh, pretty early into the reconstruction, uh, bids you all adieu. He, he just, you know, one day slap, straps on his uh, jetpack and he, uh, he says, it's a pleasure. <laughs> I'm really glad to see that bastard in the ground. I think we all are. Thanks for coming. I didn't do much. Just helped reinforce some barriers, really. It's quite fun. Let me know if you do this again sometime. <laughs> Will do. And he goes flying off on his jetpack. <laughs> and uh, after Constance Grove is fully back on its feet, Cyrus and uh, Juliet, uh, Eliza and Roy are with you. And uh, they will go where you go as Eliza takes her first steps as an apprentice gunslinger. And before the campaign is completely over, let's touch base with everyone and uh, do a little bit of a denouement and see how, uh, how everyone's lives kind of progress here in the broad spectrum. Well, I think uh, as we're um, as we're about to leave Constance Grove with uh, Eliza and Roy, I'm kind of like watching them flirt with each other with uh, Juliet, and I uh, turn to her and I say, "You know, I'm kind of kind of jealous of Roy, honestly." Why's that? Look at him, charming, silver-tongued grifter with a. Beautiful gunslinger by his side and partial ownership of a luminescence mine? What's a guy got to do to get a life like that, huh? I can't imagine, Cyrus. But at least they'll uh, be with us for a while, I suppose. We can uh, learn from them. See if, uh, see if we can't find a way to find some sort of happiness for ourselves. That sounds nice. So when are you going to let them drive so we can sit in the back? <laughs> well, when you put it that way... <laughs> Hey, Roy, you know how to drive stick? <laughs> <laughs> Do I know how to? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. All right. So, yeah, you guys uh, you guys set out and um, probably uh, head back to the Badlands. And do you, do you make your way back towards your, um, towards your general store to open up shop? I imagine so. It's been three months. I hope somebody's uh, done something about it. But um, we'll at least have to open it up long enough to... Sell it, I think. Yeah, do you think we go back on the road? I think that's the only way to teach the instincts. Well, you get an, an opportunity to travel. Uh, probably about half a year later, you all get an LRC uh, message with some coordinates to a little spot in the Badlands from Clayton. It also gives you a date about a couple of months after you receive it to be out there. And the only thing it says, other than the coordinates and the date, is dress nice. <laughs> oh, finally, a use for this suit. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys make it out there, you're greeted at the door by a cleaned-up Clayton with his hair slicked back, wearing the coat of a triptych priest. He treats you to a feast, 
all food from his farm. Yeah, Pops and Clayton have set up a, a little bit of a, a livestock farm in the uh, in the Badlands with a with a greenhouse that Pops tends to. Mm-hmm. We help supply a local triptych church. Uh, that's a little ways off. They hold the farmer's market on Sundays. <laughs> it's quite lovely. <laughs> well, it's certainly nice to see you've found home. It's all thanks to all y'all. Cheers. Clink. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, we have a nice feast and check in with everybody as we as we keep uh, traveling in Veronique. Eventually, as we travel around and she gets the instincts, she'll make her own guns and and uh, we'll we'll part ways. And I imagine Cyrus and I will head home only to find someone else to pick up on the way to help them out as we drive off into the sunset in Veronique. Yeah, whoever you pick up next uh, has a few questions in regards to the larger plaque now not on the bumper of Veronique but inside Veronique with more names added to the list of Veronique's vanguard including Giles Farthing, Badlands Pete, Pops Mulligan, Clayton Sawyer, Eliza Valancourt, and Roy Hampton. Oh I'm sure you'll find out. (laughs) Uh, Everyone who gets in the van somehow some way their name ends up on that plaque. So where are you going to? And that's where we'll end our campaign. I just stopped. Welcome to the Series 9 post-game chatter. Series 9 has now come to an end And now it is time for us to answer some questions from the listeners. You recognize my voice, I'm sure. My name is Tommy. I'm the GM. And with me, we have Addie. Hi. And we also got some of the cast back. Um, They are all going to be on Skype. So uh, don't be surprised when their audio quality has taken quite a dip. So uh, let's go ahead and have everyone introduce themselves. Uh, Go for it. I'm Ryan Covert. I played Clayton Sawyer. Hi, I'm Daniel Barron. I played legendary outlaw Roy Hampton. I'm Sean Four. I played Doc Cyrus Finch. I'm Nick Jerry. I played Giles. All right. So now that you are familiar with their voices in this new format and not doing their character voices, we're going to jump right into the questions. We got a lot of them. Uh, so Addy, take it away with our first batch of questions. So our first batch of questions is from Ben K. Could you describe the talent trees in slightly more detail? How are they differentiated from illuminated abilities? They're they're very different from illuminated abilities. That that part's pretty easy to answer. Um, every character has three talent trees. Uh, the first one is determined by their history. The second one is determined by a choice given to them by their path. And then the third one is uh, a la carte. They can pick uh, any talent tree of the remaining talent trees to slot into there. As you level up, you get talent points, which you can either bank or spend. Uh, The higher talents of the talent tree cost more talent points to get to. And some of them have prerequisite talents you have to get to actually unlock them. Talents are much closer to, uh, to say, like a Dungeons & Dragons class ability. 
um, you know, like a, a rogue's sneak attack or a, f- a fighter's action surge. Whereas insight powers are going to be closer to like a spell that you might be able to cast in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, insight powers are first off not available to everybody. At character creation, you have to decide whether or not you want to divert some of your uh, character building points into insight to uh, make your character illuminated. And then upon doing that, you gain access to the list of illuminated powers and you can pick out uh, the ones you want. Uh, and you're limited by how high your insight attribute is. Um, the talent trees themselves, each talent tree ties into a certain attribute and its selection of skills. Uh, the one exception to that is uh, that the finesse skills are split into two different talent trees. So you have sure hands, which is uh, a talent tree that's very much about like the shooting and combat oriented stuff that goes in with finesse. And then you have the subtlety talent tree, which is a lot more about sneaking and sleight of hand and picking locks. It's the, it's the less combat oriented a- aspects of the finesse skills. And then all the rest of them have one talent tree associated with it. And it basically most of the talents enhance those skills and give you special abilities that allow you to roll the roll those skills for greater effect uh and that's that's what lets drifters become kind of the legendary figures they are on manifest and our second question is for tommy uh this is the largest cast you've worked with on the podcast how did you structure the campaign specifically so badlands pete giles etc have chances to arrive or exit Uh, It was pre-planned, at least as far as how many episodes each player would be featured in. Um, Addy sat down and we we figured out who all could participate in the season. And then we decided who we wanted to be kind of the through thread. And that's where uh, Juliet and Clayton ended up being from episode one all the way to the end. But for everyone else, we just kind of figured out when people's schedules were available. And then Addy crunched the numbers and figured out how best to break down those arcs. Uh, and so, you know, we sat down with Roman and we're like, all right, you're going to be playing this Badlands Pete character. You're going to come into episode one and you're going to exit episode six. And we didn't really plan out what his arc was going to be. We just knew collectively that he was going to be leaving by episode six. So, you know, if I managed to kill him, that'd be one thing. But then uh, as we got closer to episode six, Roman and I kind of started having a conversation. Okay, how do you see your exit going? And he he kind of came up with the idea. It's very much a Badlands Pete thing to do just to kind of walk off into the Badlands and disappear mm-hmm. <laughs> and only be a memory to the people who saw him. So uh, that's kind of how each entrance and exit went. And uh, the people who were entering didn't necessarily know what happened previously. Uh, it was actually kind of fun because we were recording and only a couple episodes had come out. So they had like sometimes an idea, but not a full-fledged, uh, a full-fledged recap. So their characters were actually coming in in the dark. Uh, The next question from Ben is for the former and I suppose current playtesters. How many other characters have you set up over Manifest and what made you choose this one in particular? Not even sure I can remember all my playtesting characters. (laughs) I think there's one based off of Reaper from Overwatch. (laughs) Teleport and had an automatic shotgun. Super edgy. (laughs) I only played him once. I don't even remember what he's called. I mean, we really? called him Death Gun. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Death, Death. called Death Gun. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of really unique and interesting characters throughout the playtests. I can answer why I picked Cyrus. Uh, over all the other characters I have floating around in the Manifest universe, and that's because if I ever have a choice, 
<laughs> of characters to play in any game will be Cyrus. <laughs> the first character I ever played was an illuminated brawler, and it was with Addie and Sean early on playing Juliet and Cyrus, and Addie was a very cool gunslinger. And so, like, then in the back of my head, I was like, all right, next time I'm going to be a gunslinger. Then I played a gunslinger for a while. And Addy was like a very cool sneak attack person. I was like, all right, next time I'm going to play a sneak attack person. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically I've chosen every character I've played from watching Addy do something very cool with the system. <laughs> uh, I've been, I think, three characters, like a geologist that died instantly. Uh, <laughs> I played a rancher who wanted to get rid of all his uh, cattle in a one-shot that Dan ran. And then my personal favorite, Wyatt Chafee, who's just going just gonna to sit here in my heart forever. <laughs> Who was like a hippie pilot, I think. <laughs> uh, he was great. And uh, Ben asks Tommy, um, did you have a specific or core source for incorporating fantastic beasts of the Americas into Manifest Wildlife? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily one specific thing. Uh, if if I had to round it all up into one specific thing, I think it, my my big inspiration and contribution would be Sean Four. <laughs> uh, he he got really excited about when I voiced early on in the playtest how the beasts of Manifest were going to be focused kind of on the uh, you know American folklores. And uh, before I even got around to writing kind of how the the monster rules were going to work, Sean was already sending me links to. <laughs> to different creatures that he dug up. So, Sean, where 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 did you find all those creatures? The Holy Bible for this is a book called Fearsome Critters of the Lumberwoods. <laughs> and I encourage everyone to look it up and read it for yourself. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the creatures from that uh from that book are featured in Manifest. And then there's plenty of resources online, like cryptid websites that uh talk about all sorts of different creatures from folklore. Uh, and I, I remember digging into those a lot once I started actually writing up the stat blocks for certain monsters. Uh, and then this one is actually for Sean. Was the Grift of a Lifetime a previous campaign or of your own private invention? Uh, both. <laughs> yeah. The, the Grift of a Lifetime was a campaign arc that we have played previously in Manifest, uh, proving that Manifest can indeed handle deep, and complex intrigue plans. <laughs> so then we have another group of questions from Mark N. One is just a statement. He'd like to nominate Clayton for the Golden Glow Awards. <laughs> so congratulations on your nomination. <laughs> good show. Good show. <laughs> Cheater. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> His first question is, what does everyone think of the illuminated mechanics and abilities? I love them. <laughs> I just used ones I thought would fit a bounty hunter too. I, like I said, I I had a teleporting shotgun guy, so that made for some very interesting combats. Uh, I have, from the first time I ever played Manifest, more or less tried to break every part of the illumination system from the get-go. Usually successfully. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so then this one's a follow-up, uh, also from Mark. Who wants to play an Illuminated again or for the first time? Me, always. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a wizard. <laughs> I'd play it again, yeah. Uh, I have actually never played an Illuminated character. No, that's not true. That's not true. 
Yeah, I would love to play an eliminated character again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, this question is for you. Why'd you choose that color scheme and call it illuminated? Well, so the universal color scheme of kind of that golden glow was really more of a byproduct of the system and world being unknown and uh, trying to like kind of unify the idea of luminescence within the world of the podcast. It actually, throughout our playtests, illuminated characters have had different tells for when they're doing uh, their kind of powers. Um, usually it is some kind of glow in some way uh, because the power does come from luminescence, which uh, I describe as like kind of a, a hard light substance. Um, when, you're, when you're holding a nugget of luminescence, you can't really see the, the body of it. It just looks like you're holding light itself. So uh, that's where the name illuminated came from because... It, it was pretty pretty easy to kind of translate luminescence into illuminated. Also, uh, the more the more we use illuminated, luminescence, and so on, we can enforce the slang terms for luminescence like Lucy or Old Lou. But uh, uh, just for the purposes of the podcast, I kind of went with what I think is probably the more traditional tell for an illuminated character, which is uh, like that golden glow. Uh, I think Dan played an illuminated character whose tell was that like their eyes would go black. And uh, the, like, tattoos they had on their body would, like, grow and writhe. Uh, the next question is uh, for uh, Seth Lilly, who isn't uh, here with us today, but he played Pops. The question is, Pops, talk to us about tanking, please. Uh, what was your mm -hmm. overall impression and how did it feel compared to other systems? I sent that question along to Seth and I have his response here in text form and I will read it. Tanking is not generally in my wheelhouse, so Pops was kind of a departure for me. It was shockingly easy to have a character who basically never shot people, you know, other than that one time. Because I had a decently high static initiative, and the Aegis talent was super useful for protecting gunfolk from attacks outside of that initiative. It was nice to be able to have a pacifist character who could actually do things in a fight. Usually you have to also be able to attack as well as block to be useful. Pops was fun because he basically was just really good moving cover. And Mark's last question is for Roman Mylan, who is also not with us today. And he asks... Pete, what did you think of brawling? I also have Roman's response in text form. We all got a kick out of this question, though, because uh, Roman uh, has played a bunch of different characters in Manifest, and a large number of them have been brawlers. Um, in fact, he starts off his response with, I've played a beef boy slash wrestler in more or less every system I have ever played. And Manifest seems to take a lot of the ideas I've seen before and improve upon them, so that on the whole, playing a brawler feels like how you want it to. Grapples feel like you're physically dominating an opponent, and you can use that to control your advantage, unlike other systems where grapples feel like a highly situational waste of an attack. The calculation of how many extra attacks you get is rooted in an understanding of how your character would operate in a fight, rather than having them arbitrarily awarded as you level up. But one of the biggest things I'd praise Manifest on is how investment in the brawn talent tree makes you truly feel like a well-rounded athlete in, in a way that other systems hardly ever do. For example, a strength-based D&D fighter feels like you always skipped leg day. 
because anything about speed or dodging is governed under dexterity. While in Manifest, with a quick investment of a single talent point, you can use your brawn to calculate your initiative. So you're one of the first to get into the fight. And when it comes time to dodge, you can actually use a muscle skill like athletics to do so, rather than having to just take a hit because you're too strong to also be quick. Plus, you get to deal realistic amounts of damage. Overall, it just feels great, and it makes sense with the character concept without shoehorning you into a specific loadout and build options. Overall, 10 out of 10 would beef boy again. (laughs) (laughs) Our next question comes from Riley C. I know you trim down your episodes for the recordings, but how long are your actual game sessions? Do you only record one episode at a time? Uh, I've answered this question uh, at length in a few different post-game chatters. Uh, Always happy to go for it again. I'll try to be uh, as concise as possible and less rambly as usual. To answer the second part of the question first, uh, we don't record only one episode at a time, usually. Um, And in fact, we tend to uh, consider in, in games that require session-based refreshes like in manifest basically you can only hit each of your advancement triggers once per session Uh, we tend to determine one session as two podcast episodes the things we cut are just the dead air of us looking up a quick rule or uh counting a dice roll or having to go back because someone dropped something and it messed up the audio of a recording uh we cut all that out but anything that truly informs the narrative or touches on the narrative makes it into the episode uh and so as a result um our episodes on average when raw are usually around an hour and 45 minutes to two hours long. And uh, once we kind of trim that uh, trim that dead air out of there, we end up with an episode that's anywhere between one hour long and like an hour and 20 minutes long. Uh, combat can be a small exception to that because usually in combat, there's a lot more dice rolling and a lot more double checking how rules work. So those, those episodes can tend to go a little longer and get trimmed to a little shorter. But that's kind of the general overall idea of how it works. Our next set of questions come from Gordon R., The first one is a classic. If you were able to play a character or NPC other than your own, who would it be? Uh, Let's go around the table. Let's start with Sean. Oh, geez. Cyrus. (laughs) 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 Sorry, no one else can have him. Me. Sorry, I don't want to play any other characters (laughs) ever again. Cyrus, Cyrus, always Cyrus. (laughs) All right, what about you, Nick? Uh, Clayton, I think. I just... I just, I really want to be a wizard. <laughs> and uh, Dan? Man, that's tough. I've, I've playtested long enough that I've sort of played the archetype covered by all the other player characters. So, like, I think um, Cornfoot, uh, Anastasia Cornfoot, the, the illuminated uh, lightsaber lady, she <laughs> seems fun to be. <laughs> <laughs> she does have a pretty good life. <laughs> uh, what about you, Covert? Uh, probably Juliet. Yeah, capital G gunslinger. <laughs> and uh, Addie? Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> there is there's no other character for me in Manifest, given the choice. Uh, taking away Juliet, I would maybe play Pops because I do love shields. I, I had a huge input on, on the, the hardiness tree where all the cool shield stuff happens. Uh, so I do love that. But really, if I'm given the option for Juliet, there's really just... There's really just no other choice. She's she's my 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 heart. 
Gordon's next question is, Tommy, what do you think is the biggest challenge you overcame in designing Manifest? Honestly, the biggest challenge was the math that I made Addy do. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Manifest, you know, I, I put a lot into like the base mechanics and the world. And then it got around to like, how do talent trees work? How do you level up? How does character creation work? And, and once I got to those questions, I kind of started stagnating and putting Manifest on a back burner because figuring out how to like balance all of that was a little intimidating to me. And then Addy just bailed it out. Addy, <laughs> Addy uh, showed up and uh, started asking me questions about how those things would work. And I was like, honestly, I don't know. And she's like, well, how about they work like this? And I was like, that sounds great. Do that. And if it wasn't for Addy, we wouldn't have the talent trees as they are or uh, any of the level up mechanics as they are. Uh, Manifest would probably still be just a word document that I have saved on my computer that I never touch. So that was the biggest hurdle and, uh, and Addy saved it. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, next question from Gordon. What are your favorite parts of the system that we maybe didn't get to see in the series? There was so like just the nature of the podcast being much more focused on like keeping the story moving in a like enjoyable way than us sitting down and talking about the mechanics a ton. Like, I've really enjoyed the mechanics of modifying your weapons and armor and like eking out every last inch of, of effectiveness out of them. And that I feel like is something like that we definitely did, but didn't make it to air. That's fair. Yeah. A lot of that happened in between sessions. Uh, something that we didn't get to see pretty much at all is um, the ends of the talent trees. All of those like super level abilities that I love. Um, we, we, backwards engineered uh most of the talent trees we started with what is the coolest thing you could do in this category and built them from there uh and i think that we saw only one tier yeah. four talent when you shot a bullet out of the sky i shot a bullet out of the sky <laughs> um but uh but other than that the the other trees have amazing stuff too I, I i think we didn't get to see that but that's for another time vote manifest back in and we'll do it the other thing i think that we didn't necessarily see so much is the typical drifter life um something of like hey there's a bounty board go get a bounty hey there's some bandits go kill some bandits or, or the the typical drifter life is the thing that i i think that is my favorite part of like here's a mission and it all leads into this one big thing we were very much on juliet's road and she did get sidetracked into some driftery things but i think that the the uh stereotypical drifterness uh is kind of a little tiny bit. I'd like to punch it up a little bit, basically. Next question from Gordon. Are the Triptych Faith's parables made up as you go along, just adding together as playing progresses? Too bad Pops isn't here to answer it. We we tended, I think we mostly made them up on the spot. There wasn't anything that was necessarily pre-planned. Um, but that's kind of been the best thing about playtesting Manifest as much as we have, is that a lot of the lore has come from this like really great group of individuals, podcast members or not, who have allowed us to use their creative points of view in order to like really grow the sort of micro-level lore. Uh, and it's been just really enjoyable and fascinating to see how everyone can contribute in their own way. Uh, and the parables are a great example of that. And for a peek behind the scenes, actually, um, I, when everyone was making their characters, Seth was one of the last people uh, who had a chance to sit down and, and uh, create a character with me. And I actually, you know, was like, Hey, if you want to be a preacher, that would be really cool for me. And the reason for that was because during the play tests, uh, Seth, 
played uh, a couple different preachers and he always had like these really interesting ideas for how those religions would work and uh and he had a lot of fun throughout the game kind of like giving glimpses on the religion and i had always wanted the triptych faith to be like the biggest religion on manifest and so i was like seth if you want i'll tell you what my broad stroke ideas are for the triptych church and then you can take those ideas and you can run with them and i would i would love that and uh he did and everything he did with pops and uh all the different like lessons that he was teaching that were like supposed to be triptych lessons just 100 percent on the on the line for like what i was hoping for uh with with his performance so shout out to uh to seth i kind of put him on the spot when he made his character and he delivered i love pops and i love what he contributed to the triptych faith uh, next question from Gordon is, Tommy, during your playtests, did you take part as a player instead? If so, what were your characters like? There was only a couple times where I playtested as a player. I, I played a, I played like a brawler, um, a privileged brawler who, who was like going around kind of like fighting in gladiatorial fights. I also played a trapper who was also kind of crafty um, and would kind of tinker things out of naturally uh, found materials. Basically, all the things I, I played, um, I, I played to try and explore an aspect of the system that I felt hadn't quite gotten where I wanted it to be. So I was like, well, let me just go ahead and see how I can make this work. And if I run into problems during the play, test then i know the the one main one i did uh that broke this system a little bit was when i played a jetpacking pharmacist who uh shot injection darts at the enemies uh full of tonics that gave them all sorts of horrible negatives uh that was during one of uh, a play test that we had dan run actually and uh he it was just overkill I, we were just fighting like little <laughs> we were fighting mooks and i was shooting like high level tonics into them and just like decimating them you shot a mook with a tier four tonic to blind him and it <laughs> killed him <laughs> <laughs> And the final question from Gordon is a general essential NPCs question. Are there any plans to have other guest GMs? If so, what systems would the other cast like to run? Uh, I'm going to hand this one off to Addie as she is the executive producer of essential NPCs. And this is way more her call than mine. I just edit the thing. So we're always talking to the cast and, and uh, seeing if they want to run. Um, we aren't going to have that for series 10 because uh, it's the, it's the people's vote. But uh, in the future, there's nothing crossed off. It's really uh, we learned a lot when when Covert sat in the in the GM's chair uh, and because he did a great job. And we learned how much Tommy and I rely on each other for GMing input and and redirecting and, and how much pressure that we put on other guest GMs. And, and we want to make sure that whoever is sitting in the GM's chair is as comfortable as possible with their like level of responsibility. Um, so we're working with some of the cast members uh, to, to bring them on uh, in the in the big chair, um, hopefully pretty soon. So what do you guys want to run? <laughs> well, if I were to do it again, I think I'd like to run Uncharted Worlds. I got some zany ideas for that. <laughs> Blades in the Dark, Fate. And a game I just discovered called Rutama. And our next set of questions come from Jim A. To all players, how much experience did you have playtesting Manifest before being part of this series? A lot. <laughs> I, I was actually a part of the very first playtest. 
that you're selling yourself short. You were the only play tester of the very first play <laughs> test. <laughs> I've done a medium amount, two one shots and one campaign. The casts that played in series nine are some of the most prevalent play testers I had throughout um, all the years of making manifest. I think Seth may have had the least amount of experience out of everyone. He he partook in some of the later play tests. He, he played his preacher character, but he hadn't really played anything before that. So I think he had the, the most limited amount of experience out of the, out of the whole cast. But ultimately, everyone had played the game at least six to ten sessions easily, uh, if not way more than that. <laughs> Next question from Jim, also for all the players. Are there any elements of your character, whether mechanical or story-based, that you didn't get to show off but wished that you could have? Cyrus never got to set up shop and and sell stuff. That's really at his heart. He never really got to pop open uh, Veronique's uh, medicine show hatch and and really run a, a sales pitch. But there were too many other more important things to take care of. <laughs> I didn't get to shoot enough bullets out of the sky. (laughs) (laughs) One is not enough. (laughs) Giles never got to actually build a prosthetic because nobody almost lost an arm until later. (laughs) (laughs) Next question from Jim uh, to everyone who has an answer. What's one dice roll in the series that you wish you could re-roll? I wish when Cyrus had asked eliza to cut him in for 10 percent, he had failed because now he's rich and can retire and that's terrible (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i'm pretty happy with the way like success and failure wise uh, pretty happy with the way everything turned out there's a couple that i'm happy did fail usually involving uh roy (laughs) i think it made that story arc a lot more interesting uh, final question from Jim uh, to everyone. What's your three-word pitch for the listeners who should be excited to play Manifest? Anyone who has a three-word pitch for Manifest? Psychic Bounty Hunter. Capital G Gunslinger. I don't know how you top that. <laughs> <laughs> Step right up. <laughs> All the D20s. <laughs> uh, so our next questions are from Wise Idiot. Uh, questions for Tommy. Were the characters pre-leveled at the start of the campaign? Yes. Yeah, they were. Um, if I recall, they started around level seven. That let them have a few tier two talents or they could invest straight into a tier three talent if they really wanted to. And uh, that was that was intentional. Uh, part of it was because uh, we were, because of our own uh, internal canon for what had been going on with Cyrus and Juliet. It, like the lowest I could reasonably allow Juliet to start this campaign was level seven. But uh, yeah, they started around level seven. And by the end of the campaign, uh, they were, I think, either 11, 12 or 13, depending on how many experience triggers they hit in that last episode. <laughs> Wise Idiot's second question is, is the character arc going to be featured in the official manifest rulebook? Juliet would cut an imposing figure as the iconic gunslinger. Um, well, I'm actually not in charge of the layout of the rule book. Uh, uh, that's going to be all Addie, uh, so she can expand a little bit on, uh, on the art that will be included. 
so actually the essential NPCs character art isn't going to be featured in uh, the manifest rule book. Uh, we love the art. And uh, if you are a listener of the podcast for very long, you know that we love Lillian Jermeyer, who does all of our podcast art through series nine. And um, she didn't have quite the bandwidth uh, to, to take on a huge project like this. Uh, and we wanted our art to look consistent throughout the book. So uh, while uh, she may be contributing later to uh, more books or modules or something like that. Uh, the core rulebook will not have any Lillian Dermeyer art. Uh, at least we don't have any any plans for it. But I agree. Juliet would cut an imposing figure <laughs> as the gunslinger it, iconic art. It's worth noting, just because the Lillian Dermeyer rendition of Juliet uh, isn't going to make it in the book. That doesn't mean that there won't be images of some of these characters. These characters are canon, and it's likely that they'll show up in some of the images. So keep an eye out. Maybe you'll see Badlands Pete or something, or uh, punching some guy or lassoing someone under a, a title that says, like, Legends of Manifest. Wise Idiot's third question is, did any aspects or mechanics from the role-playing games previously played in the podcast inspire contributions to Manifest's rules? Yeah, kind of all of them. Honestly, every every game I've played has influenced uh, the creation of Manifest in one way or another. Uh, there's some that are more the, there are some influences that are more clear than others, um, but nothing is created like in a vacuum. And everything I've played has either uh, contributed by letting me learn things I didn't like about RPGs or showing me uh, mechanics and uh, game theory uh, that I did enjoy and uh, to talk about specifically the the ones we've played on the podcast like you you know manifest has a tiered success mechanic and you can see that in games like Tefra which we played in series four uh, and then there's of course the shoot the ship mechanic which is a lot like the cramped quarters mechanic that uh, from Uncharted Worlds which we play in series three uh, throughout all of essential NPCs I've had the privilege to explore different kinds of games and see what I do and don't like in RPGs. Uh, and Wise Idiot's final question is, are there any plans to offer a playtest before the official release? Short answer is yes. Um, but uh, again, I'm going to pass this one over to Addie because she is managing the Kickstarter. And uh, uh, some of those options include uh, Kickstarter rewards. So uh, Addie, uh, how about you expand on the playtest options moving forward? Sure. So... We have our high-level pledge, which uh, has already been bought up, snapped up really early in the campaign uh, for a playtest for uh, the backers and their friends. Um, and uh, we will be playing with them shortly after the Kickstarter is funded and successful. After that, uh, we will be at a couple of cons throughout the summer and fall running games of Manifest the RPG. We are waiting on confirmation for the from the conventions uh, as far as tables and events. Uh, but keep an eye out if you're coming to a con, especially in the Midwest. Take a look, see if you can't find Manifest on the event listings. Next up is Robert M's questions. Uh, he asks, how is the Fistful of D20 system coping with the tendency of dice pool systems on higher levels to make success almost a given? For example, in Shadowrun, you just don't fail after a certain level of karma. 
one, one thing that can be easily uh, compared between Manifest and Shadowrun is that Manifest has a max limit for how many dice you can roll. You can only ever roll five dice. That's not including, you know, explosions for getting critical successes and, and exploding into more dice. But the biggest you can start with is five dice. So that right there kind of puts a puts a power level ceiling. You can't end up like in Shadowrun where you get to roll 32 dice on something. On top of that, uh, the enemies can kind of scale with the players pretty well um the situations can can become more fraught and those negative penalties can start getting really really high um we kind of see that a little bit in the in the near the end of the podcast when they're in the mine sometimes they they ran into a couple of things where they were like at minus six minus seven and that can really take a dent on how many dice actually come up successful so you get more powerful and more trivial things just are givens. And I, you know, I recommend to GMs in, in any system when that starts to become the case, maybe don't call for rolls all the time when you don't need them. Uh, I think we see that like once or twice. I'm like, oh yeah, you're, ta- you're skilled enough at this. You have time. I'm not going to make you roll for it. But uh, the... The things that are actually challenging are, are still going to be challenging because you're, you're, the people you're fighting are going to be probably around your skill level. Uh, enemies can have some talents th- uh, if they're really, really special. We see a little bit of that uh, at the end with Peter O'Malley being able to use the shrug it off talent. The drifters, while exceptional individuals, are not going to just be able to breeze their way through uh, any challenge that's thrown at them. Uh, it's going to continue to scale. Uh, and the one one other thing that uh, is built into the Fistful of D20 system is that uh, there is a, an upper limit to how high your skill can go. Uh, if you roll an 18, 19, or 20 on the die, that is a failure no matter how many bonuses you have to your roll. So uh, there are just times when dice will fail, and there's uh, not a whole lot that can be done about it. And that keeps the, the playing field a little more even. Uh, Robert's second question is, how easy is it to create NPCs in Manifest for combat as well as social encounters? Are you planning on creating a toolkit slash building block system? I could answer that, but actually I think the person uh, who might be uh, best for answering that would be uh, Dan. Because like I said before, Dan did run a playtest that I played in, and he uh, he kind of had like a cursory glance at some of my playtest notes. And there were some things that I think uh, he focused on when he was making NPCs that, that was really smart. So go for it, Dan. Yeah, so I would say it's pretty easy. There's... Definitely like an easy tendency to think, oh, God, I've got to make a whole character for this important NPC. Um, Especially one of the things from your notes, Tommy, that made it really easy was um, all the NPCs I made had three dice pools. It had the dice pool for the skills they were bad at, the skills they were okay at, and the skills they were good at. And then it had the targets for those pools. So I knew how many hit points they had. I knew how much armor they had. I knew what guns they had, but I didn't have to worry about what is exactly their muscle, what is exactly their finesse. I could just in the moment think like, all right, he's okay at dodging. He rolls two dice for that, and his target's going to be an 11. And it was really simple to make sort of the simplistic mooks and goons, and then from there, making them into the important NPCs for that session was as simple as like picking out a handful of talents that I thought would help showcase what they were supposed to do in that session so like you know i had their dice pools their targets and then this guy instead of just being that also got a high tier sure hands talent this other guy got you know some enlightenment talents and all of a sudden after like 
45 minutes, I had a gang of five really cool bandits who were super easy to make and were a lot of fun to use in a session. Yeah. And, and honestly, that was just kind of a thing I did kind of half mindedly. And then the fact that Dan picked it, uh, picked it up without really discussing it with me and then did it in his own notes made me realize, yeah, let's, let's put that in the rule book. (laughs) As soon as, as soon as like, it seemed like a thing that like could be expanded on, that's going to kind of be the, the, the notion of the, how to make an NPC section of the rule book. Uh, Robert's third question is, how dangerous slash lethal would you describe Manifest? How does it compare to D&D or Shadowrun? The PCs seemed to rarely be threatened, partly because of the wound system. Uh, well, one thing about the wound uh, system is that you're actually limited how many wounds you can have based on how durable your character is. So if you're a person with low durability, you're going to only be able to take like one or two of those wounds before you start having to take those, that hit point damage. Uh, whereas if you're like someone like Pops, you know, you're going to be able to like pile on a bunch of wounds. Uh, but that's the whole point. He's invested in being survivable. But I, I think the ga- the system is uh, pretty razor edge uh, lethal, but uh, that's from my perspective behind the screen what about uh the players what do you guys think the lethality of the system is did you feel like your life was in danger usually when i was taking wounds is because i was about to go down and that was how i was going to stay in the fight yeah same here Uh, anytime i took a wound it was because uh that would have killed me otherwise cyrus uh especially like at high level play like that pretty much any solid hit on him will down him in one shot. He's good at a lot of things, taking hits, not one of them. (laughs) I kind of agree with everyone that like, it feels very deadly. Like it felt dangerous playing in fights with dangerous enemies. But what I actually love about the injury system is it gives a player a lot of narrative control over like, am I ready for this character to be dead? Would I rather them have something really bad happen to them, but I get to keep playing them. And I enjoyed like feeling like I was in danger, but also knowing that I could say like, no, Roy's going to lose a leg here. I would like to keep playing this character. Uh, Not to pile on too much, but I will say that there are a few instances where the game is super lethal. Having played a gunslinger, um, (laughs) uh, there are some pretty stressful roles that you make because you know if you lose, you're, you're done with that character. But the other thing is, is that Manifest was designed to not require you to have a healer um, or, or have a designated, you know, doctor character unless you wanted one. And so uh, you can make it as deadly or as safe as your table wants it to be. And and that was really important for me because I really love like the narrative bits of the story and I want to keep playing my characters forever. Um, whereas, uh, you know, some people are like, if I if there's no risk involved, what am I doing? So so there there is a lot of flexibility to that. But the way we play generally is is uh closer to the razor's edge than it might sound also some of those wounds will kill you in a round um too that's true <laughs> yeah the, there is a class four injury that you can roll like sure you know pops almost lost an arm but arm but he could have rolled bleeding out which is you're going to die it's just going to be slow so you get to do some extra stuff which would have made it even more intense uh for cyrus to successfully treat that injury because if he didn't pops was dead <laughs> Uh, Robert's uh, fourth question is, can you create something in the vein of a magician slash sorcerer? I know that luminescent characters are not meant to be typical mages like D&D wizards, but my boyfriend enjoys these classes the most. So I'm curious. 
Nick, do you have a thought? <laughs> yes. Be a tinkerer. <laughs> tinkerer. It's sci-fi world. You can build whatever you can think of. Technology is basically magic. And and Dan, how about you? <laughs> oh, you can totally make a wizard in this game. <laughs> <laughs> I asked Dan because uh, during one of the play tests, uh, uh, like he said, he's played uh, Illum- Illuminated a few times and uh, he specifically has tried to break the system a lot. But there was the one you did play one character who <laughs> bad at, at everything but talking and being illuminated. <laughs> no, 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 he could talk. He knew what was outside and he was illuminated. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, investing deep into the uh, to the metal tree, which is linked to uh, kind of the survival uh, elements. And uh, uh, there's some secrets of manifest to be unlocked in the talents of that tree. Um, and then in, uh, there's the enlightenment tree, which is tied to uh, the insight attribute and uh, uh makes your illuminated powers better more cost effective both of those things together if you really really dig into those two trees you can become something close to a wizard <laughs> that character up until the very end was extremely fragile and like i had to play really careful much like a wizard and then much like a wizard right at the very end he became literally unkillable <laughs> <laughs> And then Robert's last question is, I like that there's so much agency with the different uses of grit. I was wondering what kind of options there are for battlefield control. I've seen the support and utility of Pops and Cyrus, but besides Pete's whip, I don't clearly remember crowd control. What options exist in Manifest? Well, yeah, so there's there's grappling, which uh, Roman touched on a little bit. Grappling is actually pretty effective in Manifest. Um, there are also illuminated powers that can, uh, that can crowd control. Like you can blind enemies, you can use telekinesis to like restrain them, that kind of thing. And then there's some, there's some items and gear. Uh, there are net bullets that you can shoot nets out at people you can load up a, a dart with a tonic that like paralyzes someone. Um, there's a, there's enough different options in there that if you wanted to make like a battlefield control character, you could, uh, not so much in the grit department. None of the really, uh, none of the grit expenditures really have to do with battlefield control. Those are all just about making it. So whatever you're trying to do, uh, has a better chance of succeeding. Again, yeah, you're looking for a tinkerer. Uh, Being able to make uh, grenades and, um, like, kind of gadgets. Uh, I played a character that was a trapper whose main function was use grit to flashback and have a device for this exact scenario. That's what you're looking for. You (laughs) want to be a tinkerer who has the gear for every scenario and always has four grit in reserve. (laughs) Our next batch of questions comes from Alan L. Uh, for Addy and Tommy, is there any space flight available in the setting of Manifest? As in, can there be orbiting vessels around the planet at any given time? Addy, you're right in the lore. Uh, do you want to take that one at first? Uh, so if you are playing uh, core rulebook Manifest, uh, the, the lore is is that there is no um, current spaceflight technology. Um, but as the GM at your table, you can choose to create that. The canon right now at book one uh, has no real spaceflight. I suppose you could fly an airplane really, really high. <laughs> um, but other than that, there's no orbiting vessels that we know of. There might be a, a satellite or two that hasn't fallen to, to the planet yet, but 
uh, with the departure, literally everything that could uh, left through the wormhole. Uh, so space is actually pretty empty uh, other than the moons and the asteroids up there. Uh, next question from Alan uh, for Tommy. Do you have other essential NPCs you would have liked to add into this campaign? Uh, it's funny you ask that because I was actually really, really nervous about uh, overdoing it with uh, the essential NPCs because, you know, we were doing it on the podcast and it would be wrong for me to do the podcast and not bring in some of the previous characters from uh, from other campaigns. That's like our whole thing. But I was uh, I was afraid to do it because, you know, we were kind of figuring this podcast would be kind of a, a canon story in the world of Manifest. And I, I was, uh, you know, I was afraid of doing too many of the ridiculous characters. And and then, like, there was a point in the middle where I just fucking forgot about that and jumped the shark and was like, you know what? How about we take a bunch of characters from the most ridiculous season of Essential NPCs? <laughs> and and I just brought in, like, a bunch of members from the core delete. I brought in Duncan Furter. Uh, and then, like, I started doing that, and I was like, I need to dial it back. I'm losing my mind. I gotta stop. <laughs> and so then he added Bumper. So, I mean, he did dial it back. B Bumper is... Bumper is so made for this system. I mean, he he was a nomad before there were nomads. <laughs> uh, next question from Alan is also for Tommy. With the Fistful of D20's system being a roll-under system, does character progression on Manifest eventually make certain unopposed skill checks trivial by raising the target number to 19, since 20 is always a critical fail? Well, we touched on this a little bit while answering an earlier question. The uh, uh, 17 is actually the maximum uh, for successful rolls. Um, if you roll an 18, 19, or 20, then those are going to fail. 20s are the critical fail, but 18, 19, and 20 always fail. The benefits for having positive modifiers that put you over 17 is that when the GM introduces negative modifiers, uh, it might not matter. Um, I know um, uh, we've had playtests where someone was so good at a thing that I was like, yeah, you're going to do this at a at a minus four and they're like okay well because of this talent this gear and these things i'm actually still rolling for 17s or lower so in in to answer the question in most cases not so much because there's still that kind of 15 percent chance of failure always but if the role isn't actually one that is going to challenge you it's probably smarter for the gm just to be like there's no reason for me to have you roll this you're not gonna misfire nothing nothing interesting is gonna come from this it's not worth it uh, next question from Alan, uh, for Tommy, Addy, and Sean, uh, I missed most of your live demo Q and a, would you be willing to release audio recordings of that one and any future Kickstarter campaign streams as bonus episodes for series nine? I'll take this one. We aren't planning on releasing it on the Essential NPCs podcast as like a bonus episode. But what we are going to do is Manifest uh, now has a YouTube channel uh, and hopefully we'll be populating it with lots of interesting things. But the first and only thing on there right now is the live uh, is the live stream from the Kickstarter. So you can always go there now. We'll put the link in the show notes. And the next question from Alan is for the players. Who was your favorite character? Juliet. <laughs> I also have to say Juliet because Juliet will shoot me if I don't. <laughs> Sugar. Uh, but in all in all actuality, I really did enjoy the the Clayton and and Roy arc. I can't separate them. Uh, but uh, but Roy's sort of like, no, I've turned over a new leaf. Just kidding, I'm escaping. Just kidding. Now I'm rich with this like person I met. And, uh, and Clayton being like, wait, what? Wait, what? 
wait, what? Uh, was just like the odd couple that I've always wanted. Uh, so so uh, there's them too. Uh, I'll go with Eliza just because it's so fun to romance Tommy on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I never planned for it either. It just happens. <laughs> That's how you know it's meant to be. <laughs> uh, always lock them in grep, probably. They're just... They're just great. Another question from Alan for the cast. What systems of the ones where you weren't a player on the podcast would you have liked to have played in? Oh, D&D, 100%. Probably Uncharted Worlds. Star Wars is cool, but yeah, definitely Uncharted Worlds. It just has a lot of really interesting character creation options, and I have like a million ideas. (laughs) While ENPCs was playing Star Wars... I had to listen to Tommy and Addie tell me like every day, oh my gosh, you would love this system so much. Like, you, would, you would love this system. We're playing the system. You'd love it so much. Oh, that was mean of us. I'm sorry. <laughs> Probably also Uncharted Realms. I love the, the narrative ones and Shadowrun is just way too intimidating. <laughs> Next question from Alan. Uh, for everyone, which systems from the podcast would you have liked to GM of the ones that you didn't GM? Probably Uncharted Worlds. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys haven't caught it, covered on an Uncharted Worlds cake. <laughs> uh, I will also say D&D. Uh, it's the only system that we played that I know like backwards and forwards. Uh, I'm going to say Manifest. Aww. I've never played the system, but Tepper sounds fun. Um, so I, my answer is a little bit more convoluted. Uh, Tommy and I negotiate who's going to GM <laughs> uh, every series. So uh, I've run all the ones I want. And I think Tommy's run all the ones he's wanted to as well. Yeah. Uh, next up from Alan, for the cast, since voting will already be over by the time you post this, what system would you want to see win the final round of voting? Uh, I, I would really like Monster of the Week to win. It's a cool system. I really like it. I think it's probably the best Powered by the Apocalypse system I've seen or played. And it's just really cool. I'm also with him on Monster of the Week. I just really like Powered by the Apocalypse systems and uh, fighting monsters. So that one's got my vote. I am the Blades in the Dark boy. <laughs> uh, I love crime drama and gang wars i'm fine with whatever we play there wasn't anything that got put on that bracket that addy and i weren't willing and excited to play next from alan for the cast who haven't gm'd on the podcast before would you be willing to gm a series now we heard what you would be willing to if you did gm but would you want to (laughs) yup uh, yeah, I think I think pretty much anyone who's involved in the Essential NPCs podcast is uh, is a fan of the show and would love to contribute it. And a lot of our cast has experience in the GM seat and any one of them uh, could step up and run the right system. Next from Alan is for Tommy. Now that you've used live remote for this series, will it continue to be used in future series? I'm going to pass this again off to my executive producer, Addy. <laughs> Yes. Going forward, 
barring any massive changes where everyone moves to the same city again, uh, we will be doing local remote recording, uh, which means that everyone will be sitting at their desks and recording themselves on their own home computer and then sending us the tracks. Next from Alan, for the cast, what have been your most and least favorite systems on the podcast so far? Um, I think tied for most favorite is Shadowrun and Manifest. They're both super cool. I love sci-fi western. I also love magical cyberpunk. Um, I've also gotten to play like two of my favorite characters in those systems. So that's uh, some bias there. Um, least favorite is probably Uncharted Worlds. I enjoyed it, but I generally don't like Powered by the Apocalypse systems a ton, which is why Monster of the Week kind of caught me by surprise when I got the chance to play it. Um, I just sort of wanted Uncharted Worlds to have a few more rules, like a little bit more structure about what I was allowed to do and, and what I wasn't allowed to do also. (laughs) Steve was supposed to be like really good at a couple things. And then I rolled super well a lot early in that series. And all of a sudden he could do anything because that system (laughs) is basically like, well, if you succeed, just start talking and it's true. (laughs) I don't think there's any system I didn't like that I've played in. Uh, I've had a blast playing just about anything. I will say Shadowrun's probably my favorite of those, just because uh, it's probably my most played game. And uh, Boomer was a ton of fun to play. Even divorcing my favorite character from my favorite my favorite characters from my favorite systems, they often tend to run together for me. I actually think Manifest is my favorite system that I've played on the podcast. It has like all the like mechanical and narrative elements that I look for in a game. And then I don't know. I also got to play like one of my favorite characters ever. Uh, my <laughs> least my least favorite would probably yeah would probably go to Seventh C, just because of I. I'm not, I'm still not sure what the rules of that game are. <laughs> I don't know. This is a trap. <laughs> you know Star Wars. Uh, next up from Alan for Tommy and Addy. As a follow up to my series eight question, would you consider new game settings that use previously played mechanics systems? Most notably, any games based on the Dungeons & Dragons open game license or any other systems that are licensed to various settings. We do uh, like to keep things uh, moving forward with what we play in the podcast. Uh, and we just got that mandate again from all of the listeners who voted in our, in our bracket. Um, all of our repeat series got voted out pretty early on uh and so while we would always and all and do always consider going back and doing different settings you know like in for D in particular something like eberron or dark sun or something like that there are so many more systems out there that we can spotlight that we haven't covered yet uh so it's always on the table it's it's really weighing what we think uh the audience wants to hear and what we want to play and run our next question is from chris a in episode 15 birds of a feather tommy said most of the cast was surprised by dan's character roy popping up at the valencourt estate I've been wondering how that was executed. Whether Dan recorded in person or called in, I imagine it would be difficult to hide his presence. Also, who knew in advance that the legendary Roy Hampton would make that last appearance? 
Okay, so I hid under a sheet. Under the <laughs> <table>. <laughs> one, one of the ways I was able to surprise people with Roy was the fact that we are playing local remote. So, you know, primarily we're communicating with each other via uh, Skype. And uh, because of that, it was just a matter of calling Dan in to the Skype call. Uh, just be, me being like, and the per- there's someone on the other side who you recognize. Everyone hold on one moment. And then like giving giving Dan a quick call. As far as who knew about it, I think it was just myself, Addie, and Dan. And Dan only knew about it like a day or two ahead of time. Um, I had talked to Addie a little bit about it. I was like, you know what? I think I need to bring Dan back. And so I spoiled it a little bit for Addie because we had to talk about the logistics as far as the podcast is concerned. You know, we don't want too many voices going at the same time. It can be confusing. But ultimately, it felt like it needed to not be me doing an NPC version of Roy. It had to be the true Roy Hampton. And um, we we agreed that it was probably what was best for for this season. And so then, like two days before recording, I was like, "Hey Dan, what are you doing? <laughs> okay, cool. I'm gonna call you in. Does that sound good? All right, sweet. Thanks." <laughs> Our next series of questions is from Cat and G. Can you explain the grit system in a little bit more depth? I know it was covered in Words with the GM, but a more lengthy explanation about grit and the various uses of it would be awesome. Yeah, I can expand on it a little bit. It's still, you know, uh, everything that featured in the podcast mechanically could be tweaked or changed a little bit by the time it hits print in the book. Uh, So I'm not going to like walk through all the ways that grit has been spent throughout the podcast because it could be slightly different by the time the book plays. And, uh, you know, this recording will be on the Internet for a long time and I don't want people to get misinformed. But uh, yeah, the way it works basically is you you start out with a certain amount of grit based on what history and path you chose. That's that's level one. And then uh, throughout the game, you can continue to accumulate grit up to a maximum number. There's various different expenditures of grit and each expenditure costs a certain amount. There's a few that cost one grit. We see the we see them a couple times like make your own luck, you know, gives you another die. There's also the very very popular one that costs two grit, uh, which is play to the gallery, which lets you kind of expand your target a little bit. But the grit expenditures can go uh, all the way up. We are, I think we also saw a flashback at one point which costs four grit. So those are some of the ways that you can spend it, but there are other ways. They all kind of revolve around manipulating the roles that are important to you or augmenting something about the scene uh, in a way that is uh, that is in your favor. It's supposed to be kind of the thing that gives you an edge as a drifter. You know, you you got that that true grit that pushes you through. Uh, the grit is kind of like an economy that is being passed back and forth between the GM and the players. And um, also when you level up, you get grit. So you always have it. And you can be like Addy, uh, a player who never wants to spend their expendable resource and ends up like holding on to the maximum number of grit until she wants to double down like three times in a scene. Um, or you can be a player more like myself, who is always just trying to get more grit because because you can't have an expendable resource and not spend it all immediately immediately so uh without going into like the super specifics about every single different way you can expand grit uh because for that you're gonna want to uh get the book um you know support it on kickstarter get it or uh once the kickstarter print run is done purchase it after that um that's a that's a good way to see all of the options but to walk through them now would be kind of pointless because there's still uh there's still a chance that they might get slightly tweaked and i don't i don't i don't want to misinform anybody 
another question is some of the mechanics of other systems are fairly obvious in how they are implemented in manifest like shoot the shit but is there any system you feel like you borrowed from more conceptually than others I, I touched on that a little bit with a previous question, right? Every game I've played has informed Manifest in some ways, whether consciously or not. But I think uh, one one thing I didn't quite touch on was uh, the fact that Manifest, one of the goals for it, actually, uh, I think I think it's actually... It can be really exemplified in some of the answers that were given in questions. Like Sean said, uh, he really liked Manifest because of like the the way it plays towards narrative uh, elements of RPGs that he really really likes. Uh, on the flip side, you have uh, Dan earlier was saying uh, that one of the things he likes about the system that didn't get to really get showcased on the podcast was kind of like the nitty gritty of customizing your gear and your talents and really eking out every little bit of bonus that you can get. And uh, that's like one of the more uh, uh, really kind of crunchy parts of the system. And I, I think those two sentiments is is like a thing that I would say I conceptually borrowed from every RPG I've ever played because I've always loved playing games for the narrative. I've always loved games that had mechanics that supported the narrative and encouraged narrative play because I'm not a very big fan of sitting there and playing a crunchy system where everyone just like talks about what's going on and no one does any role playing. Uh, and on the, on the flip side, while I love narratively driven uh, role playing and narrative systems, I also very much love character customization and an item customization and and some of the things that kind of lean towards more the crunchy aspects of role playing and so manifest is is the blend of those two things that uh that i love in rpgs and like and i see you know uh my friends uh love in rpgs as well and i i wanted to create a system that could cater to all RPG players uh, who love to tweak and, for lack of a better term off the top of my head, kind of power game a little bit, right? Make their character very, very effective. And then uh, and then those who really are in it for the story. Uh, Manifest tries to uh, touch on both of those big aspects of RPGs that I've grown to hold dear. Manifest is Tefra if Tefra's rulebook wasn't just totally nuts. <laughs> <laughs> like deep customization but once you start playing it's very like quick and like feels narratively driven and is easy to do cool stuff and then every time you level up you get to like tinker around with everything you want uh, another question from Catton is, I love how fresh Manifest feels both mechanically and thematically what would you say Manifest is the love child of? Westworld meets Horizon Zero Dawn? Uh, I, I don't know about Horizon Dawn versus West uh, versus Westworld. Horizon Dawn has a little bit more post-apocalyptic than than Manifest actually is. Um, but uh, without me really being able to come up with anything, how about uh, how about everyone else here? Uh, is there is there anything you would say that uh, Manifest is a blend of? Well, Wild, Wild West meets Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> Borderlands. Borderlands meets what? Covert? Borderlands 2. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. <laughs> Do you have any plans for regarding what comes next for Manifest? Modules, supplements, etc. Hey, this is a question for me. 
So we have lots of plans for what comes next for <laughs> Manifest. Uh, we've just put up our first few stretch goals, which includes uh, modules and supplements. Also, uh, a couple of uh, little stories as well. Um, we've already got like a bestiary in the works and also a campaign. Uh, we want to also run a bunch of stuff uh, in a pseudo organized play setting. Uh, we've got big plans uh, and uh, all we need is people to love us enough to get us funded and we will uh, be producing Manifest for years and years to come. Question five from Catton. Are there any bodies of water on Manifest that compare to oceans? I don't recall anything being talked about regarding travel over or under water or what perils that may hold. Uh, yes, uh, there is some water on Manifest, but Manifest is definitely not a very water-filled planet. There is a very large body of water uh, that almost completely separates the garden from the wastes. Um, it is a very large, toxic lake. Just that alone, it's toxic. It's uh, that's perilous. Um, but you know, there could be other creatures underneath that. Who knows? It's hard for people to explore it. Uh, but then there are then there are smaller bodies of water as well. There's uh, uh, actually Liberty City and Freedom City uh, touch on the same large lake, uh, and then there's rivers, streams, small lakes, oases. They they're nothing super large. Definitely no oceans. That's for sure. Uh, and he follows up with, could you elaborate on some of the major differences in the biomes on Manifest that either weren't visited or only temporarily visited? Uh, well, that links really well in with the uh, like how much water is there on Manifest because the southern region of the globe of Manifest is called the Wastes. Uh, and it is a hot and humid swampland. And it was referenced a couple times in the podcast, but they never actually went there. The closest they got was the salt flats because the, the salt flats do eventually uh, make their way to where the wastes are. Um, but they never went that far into the salt flats. So uh, the wastes, there, there are settlements there. They kind of have a unique culture um, compared to the garden and badlands. Um, there's, it definitely is the lowest populated uh, uh, region of manifest that is still inhabitable uh, since the salt flats uh, straight up are uninhabitable and the tundra in the north is also uninhabitable um uh, but there's also tons of mountains on Manifest, uh, a lot of mountainous regions between like the the Badlands and the Garden separating these kind of biomes from each other. And, uh, you know, we started the campaign uh, uh, kind of in one of those mountain ranges, but uh, they never really went back mountain uh, trekking. And there's also uh, forests that that exist in the Garden, like deep, deep forests, um, uh, large swaths of them. And uh, they never all they never really explored those as much as well. Uh, they all have their own kind of creatures that you might run into. Uh, you can find a lot of those creatures in the bestiary section of the core rulebook once once it is released. And then what what little bit we were able to show on the podcast is only just a, a touch of what you might experience, say, in the Badlands, for instance. That since the Badlands is basically two thirds of the planet. Uh, the next question is: Is there any kind of weather system or weather mechanic? There's not necessarily a a weather system. Um, but there is a, a kind of a, a narrative overall that can be applied to that, and that is the fatigue rules. Um, we see that a little bit at the very beginning when they land up in the uh, in the mountains and they have to make their way down to the base, and it's freezing cold, um, uh, and they had to keep rolling to resist fatigue damage. Uh, that's kind of how the the weather plays in uh, when when there's adverse weather conditions. Which in the garden there's storms, especially when you start getting closer to the north, you get a lot more storms. Uh, in the in the wastes, it's usually really hot and humid. 
humid and hard to like traverse. Uh, and in certain parts of the Badlands, it's just just horrible heat beating down on you in this arid, uh, you know, waterless region. And all of those kind of uh, conditions will lead to fatigue rolls. Um, and uh, that that actually I think we talk about in a Words with the GM specifically how fatigue damage works. So I won't go super into that in this uh, in this segment. And there will be um, like narrative guidance as far as weather for each region and also uh, weather events that happen across the planet in the lore sections of the rulebook. The next question is, I loved the rotating cast. It really showcased the versatility of the character options. Was that by design? Roy and Juliet seem to be the most similar out of all the characters, but even those two are miles apart. Uh, this one is really easy to answer. It was absolutely by design. Um, it started off with some scheduling issues when it came to getting uh, one cast all the way through 20 episodes. And then we immediately hopped on the idea of trying to get as much of the cast back in for Manifest to really, really showcase how many different characters you can make in this system. Because that's a big part of the system is is how robust and di- and customizable the character creation process is. Uh, so that one's a, an easy yes by design, hands down. Uh, we wanted to to show that that was possible. Uh, and the final question from Catton is: uh, Is there anything in particular that you didn't get to showcase on the podcast? A mechanic, character class, particular creature you're attached to? No, I got to show an augurino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there are other creatures that um, that are very, very cool that didn't get to showcase because this wasn't a, a very much of a heavy survival outdoors wilderness survival campaign. Um, there's all sorts of fun creatures uh, that you that you can find in the rule book, uh, like the Gumbaroo, which is this large gaseous, almost like hippopotamus like creature that um, uh, is very susceptible to flaming damage, but also will explode if caught on fire. Um, and that can be dangerous. Um, uh, there's also like uh, a lot of high level cool monsters like like a wampus or a snallygaster. Uh, those creatures are large, cool. Uh, it's not I can't get into the specifics of how their mechanics work right now, um, but they they like have like really really cool unique things. The the creatures of manifest have some pretty cool powers from being like uh, native to this weird world with this kind of unique energy source emanating through it. Uh, and our next set of questions come from Thomas M. Uh, normally the party stays the same over the campaign. How difficult was it for the GM and also for the players and their characters to have several characters switching in and out during the sessions? Well, we've talked at length about the GM angle of that and the also podcast production angle of that, but we haven't actually touched on what it was like for players to have that kind of rotating cast happening. Uh, so how about you guys, uh, expand on that a little bit? What was your experience like? It made it a lot more interesting, like when Roy came back. Also, you got to meet a wider variety of characters on Manifest. Uh, it was really fun for me to see what everybody came up with. Because we knew we were going to rotate, but I didn't know what they were bringing to the table and what much about their character at all. So it was, it was a lot of fun. It was something to look forward to during the campaign. Uh, I'll, I'll echo Covert that it was a lot of fun to see like the new people as they came along. Um, but anyone who's listened to the series eight post game chatter knows I always want to level up more. And when you're not in the series after 13 episodes, it's super hard to level up. (laughs) Uh, next question from Thomas is, it seems to me the overall story was at least in parts connected to Juliet. Did you have a plan B for the story? If Juliet died in one of the earlier, really deadly duels, or would this, 
would the story remain the same and just with other people introducing information and plot hooks? If I'm being honest, I never really expected Juliet to to die in a duel. <laughs> at that point, she had invested so many things into the talents that make you good at quick draw. It'd be really hard for me to kill her in a duel unless I made an NPC that was like truly her rival, like a quick draw specialist that was aiming to like gun down Juliet Hunt for some reason. Uh, I wasn't nearly as confident as Tommy uh, in, in winning every time. Basically, it was kind of a, a hope and a prayer every time I got into Quick Draw. <laughs> well, the thing was, I, I may have been confident that you were going to come out ahead on Showdowns, but like when I shot like the when I shot the Colossus laser at you, I was like, this could kill her. <laughs> and uh, like those moments, I knew were were possible. There was always a chance that Juliet might die, and uh, I guess I kind of assumed, uh, you know, Clayton might have uh, been the one to kind of carry the story forward like he had enough information moving forward to know that there was a man named cyrus finch who uh was in trouble and that really falls like directly into clayton's skill set is finding people and uh and so i guess i kind of thought like if juliet died i might approach covert and be like so does clayton want to like go on a mission for no pay uh <laughs> To honor this woman, maybe, who uh, who helped him, like, survive in the mountains and stuff? Uh, Sorry, she's not paying. I'm not working. <laughs> uh, if that had been the scenario, I would have 100% guilted you into it. Nice. Mostly as a way to stay out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see that scene. Last question from Thomas. How did you manage in such a large group to not all talk at the same time? It's something that I have experienced a lot, especially in Skype groups. Do you have any tips for me? I think part of the part of uh, uh, the discipline of waiting for other people to talk in a Skype call comes from uh, the very first series of the of the podcast and moving forward because uh, Ryan Covert has always been remote. Uh, so a lot of the cast members have like experienced that. And honestly, we've also played with covert a lot in home games while he's been remote. And I think, I think the, the thing that we always try to keep in mind is there is a delay. And so when you say something, you usually want to pause and wait and make sure someone else doesn't want, uh, to jump in and add something as well. That was like one of the first things that was given as the pre pre recording talk uh, way back when we were recording Shadowrun. And like that is a thing that I now do in every RPG I've played, even when I'm in person is just the like always wait a second and see if somebody else has something they want to say immediately before just like jumping right on something. And I think it's a super good thing to to live by in rpgs it's made it so much easier for everyone to sort of get in everything that's important to them one kind of key tip is um to to look for the body language um of, of someone about to speak if someone is so excited that they need to be on top of whatever's just finished being said, then their body language will definitely indicate that. Um, and that that goes for in tape uh, at if everybody's at the table or online. Uh, it's really a really good habit to get into when you're role playing is just to make sure that everybody gets to play and everybody gets to be heard. And our last question from the listeners comes from page A. Mainly for Tommy, but anyone else is free to pitch in. 
what is your approach for world building and what advice do you have for people who are looking to create settings for tabletop RPGs or other creative endeavors? I know I, I said my piece on this in the words with the GM for episode 19. Um, I kind of gave my process as far as like the world itself. Uh, Manifest is really the first thing I've done that for. So I don't I don't have like a, I just kind of made a world that I thought was cool. So I don't have any real solid tips, but there are tons of writers uh, in this in this word or in this post game chatter. So I'm going to I'm going to open the floor uh, to anyone else who wants to talk a little bit about tips they might have for world building. I know a lot of people do this. Uh, I kind of do a even lazier version of it, but uh, basically I just kind of have a general idea of what my world's like. And then I kind of put it on the players actively or passively to kind of fill out the world. And I like to build from their backstories as well. So that feel like it makes them feel like their, their characters are a part of this world and, it also gives them a lot of creative freedom to add to it. And it's less work that I have to do because I'm kind of a lazy GM. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I had to give like one one tip for, for getting world building going, um, I like to start with like what if questions and just build out from there. So like I was working on something that I haven't had the chance to run with that that started um, with uh, what if you couldn't write anything down anymore? And like from there, I was like, well, OK, so like you can't write anything down anymore. So how do you keep records? Oh, man, you can't. That's tough. Well, what if you and then like just keep following along from like an initial what if question that I found interesting. Um, my my piece of advice is probably going to sound like hooey um, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> the the real truth to world building that I've found is that um, you should build what is cool to you. For me, there's always this pressure of like, oh my gosh, are people going to like this? Is this going to be interesting? Maybe it's dumb, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and these doubts kind of creeping in. Uh, and I hear from a lot of people uh, who who are like, I, I can't really create. It's why I do pre-made modules. Or I don't really think I'd be good at a GM because I'm not good at thinking up stuff. And, and really what I've told all of those people is find a thing that you think is cool. Find a thing that inspires you. What do you like? Um, and work from that. There is always going to be somebody who likes the same stuff as you. And by creating things uh, that inspire you, those things are going to be better. So it's really important when you're like, I don't know. I'm really interested in that, you know, this thing. And then you're like, okay, so create a story about that thing. Okay, where did it come from? How did it happen? And ask for the people uh, around you for help if you're like, I'm stuck. There's absolutely nothing wrong with collaborating. Some of the best stuff that I know I've ever come up with uh, has been through collaboration. Uh, so if, if you want to build a world, build the world that you want um, and people will be happy to play in it. Like I said, sounds like hooey. And yet. When I said, uh, I'm building a world that's based on 1970s dad rock, people came out of the woodwork to play with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that is it for questions from the listeners. So last thing I want to do, a question for, for everyone here at Post Game Chatter to round things off. 
The listeners always get to hear Addie's and my favorite moments every single episode. I would really like to hear what were some of your favorite moments, either listening to episodes you weren't in or any of the episodes you were in. Uh, what was what was your favorite moment of the Manifest Series 9 campaign? Battling an Agarino with Badlands Pete. <laughs> I'm glad someone said it. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite thing is uh, later Roman looked at the stats for an Agarino and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> squonks in an elevator? <laughs> I'm tired of these motherfucking squonks on this motherfucking elevator. <laughs> Uh, I really liked the uh, Eliza Valancourt as Juliet's apprentice arc. It seemed as though it either snuck up on Juliet or Addie. Um, Both. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was great that like uh, Juliet had never taken an apprentice and hadn't even considered it. And then it happened. And then there was one moment where she challenges the remaining Walden brother and Cyrus says to Eliza, lesson one. And then she wins without firing a shot, which is like, I'm so glad that was lesson one. <laughs> I will cheat. I have a few favorite moments. I'm an outlaw. Sue me. Um, number one, Jerry. Jerry is my favorite moment of anything he is in. It's always Jerry. <laughs> And then, so there has been a running joke amongst us as playtesters in that anyone who is killed in quick draw has taken so much damage that they are erased from the timeline. <laughs> and so early on, Juliet kills Charlie Walden in quick draw and just obliterates him. And then for the rest of the episodes I was in, almost everyone had trouble remembering what his name was. <laughs> <laughs> and then Harry Walden comes back. And Juliet threatens, like, yeah, I killed your brother, whatever. And Tommy describes it as, you've got even better guns than when you killed his his brother. <laughs> like, you still couldn't remember his name. <laughs> uh all right well so that's that's from all the players uh Addy and i didn't get a chance to talk about the last couple episodes though uh uh we we skipped over our favorite parts so uh, Addy, what was your favorite part of like near the end of the campaign i bet i can take a guess <laughs> i shot a bullet out of the sky <laughs> i've been waiting for four years to shoot a bullet out of the sky and i did it and it was amazing but actually, my favorite part from the past couple episodes is Peter O'Malley choosing to lose quick draw <laughs> and taking the hit and being like, whatever, I'm fine. Um, that build is like bonkers. And when I realized what was going on, I was like, <gasps> what? Um, and, and that is uh, truly that that surprise is truly my favorite. Moment. I did get a kick out of the fact that he's like, I'm a badass. I can get shot at quick draw. Now I'm going to come beat you up. And then he gets run over with a van. <laughs> 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 and what about you? What was your favorite part? My favorite part, it, it happened outside of like uh, the, the podcast, but it had to do with the podcast. And it was, um, I was doing this kind of thought exercise to see how valuable luminescence was. 
And I kind of went through it in my head and like, okay, yeah, how about this? And then I, throughout that thought exercise, I kind of made some determinations on how much luminescence was left in the mine of Constance Grove at this point and how much was going to like, how much of that profit was going to be poured back into Constance Grove and then how much was going to be left to be scraped off 10% for Cyrus. And throughout that exercise, I didn't know what the ending number was going to be. And then when I got there, I was like, oh no. And I told Sean that I was like, you know, that 10% deal that you made for that luminescence mine. Well, if my calculations are correct, that was about a $12 million deal you just made. <laughs> Cause it, like I, I, I decided that there was still a decent amount of luminescence left in that mine. And once I figured out the value, I was like, Oh my God, Cyrus, you're a millionaire. <laughs> it, it's so, it's so funny that Cyrus, like his ending is getting rich. Because I think like retiring and like living a quiet life is like actual hell for him. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I don't think you guys do because you go on, you go and train like Eliza and all that yeah. stuff. Like it's like, but you're sitting on fucking a, a giant fortune the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea that like he keeps drifting and could buy any problem, but just chooses not to. <laughs> So yeah, that that was my favorite moment. Realizing how big that that little uh, and she he didn't even have to roll for it. I just decided to have Eliza have, like have a heart and be like, yeah, they're good people. They deserve something. I mean, she didn't know how much luminescence was in the bottom of that mine. She might have tried to haggle. <laughs> I mean, she's still so much richer than him. It's true. <laughs> uh, but that is it. Uh, that ends post game chatter. Thank you to Sean, Dan, Nick and covert for coming out. We're sorry. We couldn't get the rest of the cast in. It's hard to schedule everyone all at once, especially with this large of a cast. Thank you to the listeners for all of the support you've thrown at manifest, all the, the extremely kind words you sent our way. Uh, er this has been an extremely great experience for myself personally. And, uh, I've had a blast with series nine. And I'm, I'm really, really excited uh, for the Kickstarter to come to an end so we can share this book with you guys. Uh, so if you haven't supported Manifest the RPG yet and you want to, the link to the Kickstarter is in the show notes. Uh, please uh, go and back us if you love the system. If you already have, thank you, thank you. And share it with your friends uh, and on your socials and get the word out that there's this really cool sci-fi western. For a little bit of Essential NPCs stuff, uh, we will see you back here on the first Tuesday in May. Uh, we are skipping uh, April. We won't be releasing anything because of the Kickstarter and also because of some logistical issues with scheduling the cast. We are going to have a great time playing Blades in the Dark, and uh, I can't wait for you guys to see how the Forged in the Dark system works. Uh, really exciting stuff, and we will see you then. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you in a month. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Enjoy. <laughs> this podcast has been brought to you by ENPC Productions. All rights reserved. The Essential NPCs podcast is affiliated with and specifically approved by Tommy Cotton. Manifest... The RPG is property of Tommy Cotton, all rights reserved. For more information, go to www.manifestthertpg.com.